Hello and welcome to episode 200 of the Creighton Crowbar. Oh my god. Hooray! Hey. <laughs> We've made it this far. Pip, what's your reaction noise? Uh, uh, bicentennial, la 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 la. <laughs> Great. You can mash that together into a cheer of your own, your own preference. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so four years ago, we were sitting in a graveyard <laughs> huddled yeah. around a silver microphone, um, telling stories of, uh, I went back and listened to a chunk of episode one. Uh, it was Civ 4? <laughs> There's only been one sieve in that time. Uh, oh no, two sieves. That's been two sieves. Um, Dota, would you believe it? <laughs> would you believe it? Um, I think a mask comes up. Of M-A-S-Q. course. Mm. Um, Splunky, and... presumably, even though it hadn't come out yet. Yeah, I think I Splunky was like really been with episode two. Yeah. Mm. And then for the following 17 episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, my name is Chris Thurston, I should mention. And joining me on the podcast tonight are Pip War. Hello. Tom Francis. Hello. And Tom Senior. Good day. We should note that we, uh, we, we did attempt to make some, some Graham and Marsh related plans for this episode, but Graham moving house and Marsh is in America. So screw those guys. We don't need them. <laughs> they uh, are officially listed as dead to us on the yeah, website. Yeah. <laughs> I rewrote the, that widget in the fit of peak. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but no, we, we may well try and do some sort of, some some more episode 200 celebratory things in the coming weeks but actually this episode is is for literally the, the worst possible uh time for all of the people that would be looking to get back so as a to celebrate 200 episodes we're just going to do another episode <laughs> of the podcast you know what we should have done it's just got two people that we know who've never been on the podcast before and brought them back as if they were the original team members <laughs> we got the whole team back together we recast Marsh and Jeff. Graham <laughs> everyone remembers Jeff his Kate forgotten Jeff um, we could have just done impressions no one would have known uh, could we? Uh, well not me obviously that would be a disaster I can do an impression of Marsh can you? shit so far there you go <laughs> That's how he's feeling about this right now. <laughs> From America. But no, no, 200, it's kind of nuts. I mean, it, it was actually more than four years ago now, because we started in June 2013. Um, yeah, I very much remember the trip to the pub where we named this podcast, mm. having had about 100 worse ideas <laughs> yeah. before we got to this one. And um, it's just a... What were the worst ideas? You can find out almost all of the worst ideas... At the end of the very first episode of the show. Because oh. we listed them all, and apart from the ones that we had to bleep <laughs> for either taste or libel reasons. Because oh, some of them were libelous. Um, maybe not full libel, British libel. Like, not one of your slightly more relaxed foreign libels. We had a spreadsheet to vote on which ones we liked, and then Marsh hacked it to make us all vote for... Hitler like, was right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. We weren't going to fall for that because it wasn't like, <laughs> well, like can't argue with the popular will. It's okay. I don't yeah, remember this. Was, this this is in the naive years before the will of the people could be uh, <laughs> skewed quite dramatically. But no, we've um, yeah, kind of nuts to think that we've done this two hundred times now. Yeah, slightly more because we did some specials. Yeah, and that's time, everybody. <laughs> that's how that works. The more weeks that pass, the more of these we do, and the same is true. Of news. <laughs> so great. Thanks, man. Wow. I mean, from time passes, you can go almost anywhere. You can, yeah. 
Um, that's like the baseline segue. <laughs> well, some time has passed, so. <laughs> Change is inevitable. <laughs> um, so, news this week. So actually, to, to dial it back all the way to episode one, some of the news is Dota related. Huh. In that the uh, Dota 2 International 2017 began its group stages today, and they'll be finishing up by the time you listen to this. And then the main event will start next Monday, which is very exciting if you're me and a decent number of other people. This the is, the prize pool is 10, oh wait, the, 20, the first... 23.3 million. Right. And first place is 10 million. It's 10 right? point something. I yeah. Think. Yeah. It's yeah. a yeah. lot of money. <laughs> it is a lot of money. Um, yeah, it's exciting. And so I think we're not going to too much detail on it. It's weird, this being the first one that I am watching from home since... The... Oh, cry me a river. I will. <laughs> the cry me a river? What's that called? <laughs> I had to watch it from home last year while Chris was out there tweeting about uh, it. Oh, right. <laughs> that was, uh, I Having have a fabulous no time on my own. <laughs> well, I have sympathy for this. <laughs> for <all> myself. <laughs> yeah. Um which is weird, but um, I wanted to mention it because I think a question came up a pod a few weeks ago about getting into these things. We had a discussion about it. Um they are running a new version of the newcomer experience this year. Mm. I don't think they're doing a dedicated newcomer stream again because, as we discussed last time this came up, that was um, had some flaws conceptually. Um, but what they are doing is a sort of UI for the game that is a lot more explanatory with like basic information about characters and tooltips and oh, cool. stuff so that you can mouse over. I think this is... I, I suspect this is a browser thing because Valve has a really good proprietary streaming thing that you can use instead of twitch that pulls a lot yeah. more information from yeah. the game api than twitch does uh, i believe this is a a version of that which will sort of furnish you with extra information if oh, that's what great. you need in order to understand it which mm. is probably the best way to do it at this point take someone's existing enthusiasm and just give them the tools to learn stuff as it happens rather than try and explain everything from first principles i.e time um <laughs> every single time the game starts so yeah it's exciting i'll be Staying up to watch what I can and getting up early to watch what I can't. Because <laughs> that's time. <laughs> this episode, time. I will have maybe nearly finished a single GSL season in the six months since I <laughs> got back into StarCraft 2 uh, watching. How's that going? Uh, it's cool. Um, there's a few too many Terrans in the final uh, selection for my liking. I only l- watch games with at least one non-Terran in them. <laughs> um, and I, I root for anyone who's playing Zerg. But uh, yeah, just the commentary and just kind of following the the um, the gist of like different players' styles and stuff is what I like out of that. And I never really clicked with watching Dota. Um, the newbie stream helped. Um, but it was always just a case of like, when things are happening on screen, I just can't tell what's happening it's just a big flash of colors and and stuff um so it's always a bit of a struggle to to follow that you could come over at the weekend no and watch bits of it like it won't be on but there'll be the recaps and stuff so if you wanted will you explain it all to me have a data part (laughs) no that could be cool Mm, yeah i've got to um we've got to record some more bloodborne as well so we We do yeah yeah them into one activity party party yeah Yeah, (laughs) bloodborne data party in the evening crane global data party (laughs) That's just <laughs> games that people can bet at Dark Souls <laughs> all day. <laughs> Love it. Good. Um, so 
I'm not going to try to segue to this because there is none. Sam Barlow's new game. This <laughs> I, I was thinking about it, but I was going to get all the way back to time before I figured out the connection between Dota 2 and her story. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, a sort of strange, um, quite low-key announcement process for this because about, I don't know how long ago, but um, months ago, uh, he just sort of posted a picture of the front page of the script to her story too. Uh, that was the announcement of her story too. Um, and then I don't think there's been anything since then until like the other week when um, uh, uh, an article on Variety, I think, mm. announced that he is working on a game called uh, Telling Lies. Yes. Right? Good guess. And um, you're an FBI agent searching some kind of database, are you? Apparently it's some sort of social political drama. <laughs> and I mean, I haven't even definitively seen that... Uh, like him saying that this is her story too, but it's sure sounds like, I mean, it must be because he's also working on war games, um, mm. which is a TV series, I believe. And I can't believe he's doing that and two other games, one of which is a lot like her story, but not called. I saw it described as a spiritual successor to her story. Yeah. So I don't think you would do a spiritual successor and a successor. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, like the ghost and the and, uh, body. That was kind of, yeah, I think, um, makes sense that he's doing a sequel it also makes sense that it's not literally just following on from the last one because that wasn't a plot you could just sort of tack no. on to the end of right um, her next story <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm glad it's a new thing and, and being an investigator makes maybe more sense for the kind of um for the kind of interaction that you have in those games mm. yeah i think the thing is so mentioned three or four characters rather than mm. one which makes sense if you're yeah. doing an investigation um it's usually exciting the theme telling lies is just such a perfect like i'm already thinking about how that would mesh with the format <laughs> yeah, yeah and uh yeah it's so exciting her story is fantastic brilliantly yeah. kind of conceived does you know what it sets out to do so so well uh and like has rescued the fmv genre like fmv has been hmm. you know historically traditionally like associated with very bad old pc games but in a way <laughs> doesn't it kind of create the fmv genre because mm. there was never a good one right and fmv is <laughs> pretty really much always a stand-in for for cgi graphics right mm. like a a cheaper way of doing yeah. real people so this was like the first use of like a real human being in a game i think i can um, think of where that was necessary that was 100 percent necessary like yeah i guess you like you could look back to the mist games and abduction more recently where they use kind of strange um uh, full motion video 2d cutouts of characters to interact with you and it, it's never quite worked i don't think and maybe even going back to like there's some of those zork games used to do it but this is the first time where it's like it's, it's, it's you leveraging a proper human performance, a really good human performance to add to the drama and add to the kind of the point of the game. Mm. Um, it's just a good game for having actors in it. I think FMV was probably being used to greater effect outside gaming. You know, like obviously because at that point it would just be video, but like you could do interactive projects. And like I think there are some artworks out there that tapped into that in a sort of more ambiguous interesting way so it wouldn't surprise me if it's part of a continuum coming from the other direction like into games rather than out from games mm. yeah fmb was the last sort of genre i expected to see mechanical innovation in <laughs> like the thing that's called about her story is the search system and um as it happens, that is a mechanic that means all of your content could be completely pre-recorded and non-interactive and mm. the game can still feel really interactive and, and the story that ends up coming out of it, even though the story is fixed, the way it's told is is down to player choice and, and player ingenuity. 
actually, I think museum exhibits do, do versions of that oh, yeah. often. So you'd like, you know, you'd search for whatever search term you as a visitor would have in mind. And then it would spit up a bunch of like potential clips that you could watch to play about the things that are in the museum. You know, it's that kind of thing mm. that it reminds me of far more than games. Mm. So mm, That's true. I mean, and I guess it is literally a game about searching archival material. So museums mm. are kind of <laughs> natural fit for that i've been thinking about it a lot recently because it's that script amazing as that script is because it has to work both mechanically and with a very human performance is Mm. just trying to learn some lessons from it because we're doing something similar different but similar with hackmud in terms of storytelling through archival fragmentary material that can be encountered in any order and that's it's hard (laughs) yeah i mean i had a lot of respect for it anyway and now i have even more than than that previous amount if you could quantify it in some way rather than just the feeling of respect <laughs> then um you would appreciate that, that had gone up double plus respect indeed yeah at least seven more <laughs> so yeah not, not much more known about that yet but it has been a good week for narrative games yes yes <laughs> Look, I'm going to try and thread one segue through this entire episode <laughs> until I give up. And you're just going to have to deal with that. Pip, you're doing a disgusted face. <laughs> I just, I, okay. I mean, fine. Good. <laughs> Pip's entirely on board with this. Look, I'm just trying to follow what you're talking about, but I keep thinking about ducks and I can't help <laughs> it. And okay, it's well, making concentrating quite difficult. So that what, was my concentration phase. Well, maybe we just need to work through this. So what is it about ducks? That's no, <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want to derail things. I just, I'm just trying to explain that my mind wasn't on the thing. And that was the concentration of trying to bring it back into line. Okay. Not... Was your disgusted expression because you hate ducks? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking it, ducks. No. So pissed off with the ducks. <laughs> idea of like trying to hold on to like the tiny image of the duck <laughs> while also actually having engaged with what chris was saying it's really hard this happens every time i talk doesn't it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> i feel like we're playing pip's story and you get any clip <laughs> I, just, I really do think that there should be a little like face guard like the horses that have blinkers to stop them from getting distracted i think Either Chris or I should have them so he can't see what face I'm making and then ask about <laughs> it because it's not good for keeping us on track with the narrative game segue that you were making. Thanks for segueing back. Yeah. Right, but yeah, okay. Um, well, Pip's thinking about ducks. Um, <laughs> they, uh, but Pip, you, you should weigh into this because you've played every single game that's come out this week. Well, I mean, not all of them. Some of them. Many of them, in fact. All three that you mean that we're talking about yes, right now? Yes, Okay, fine. Yes. Which one do you want to start with? Well, so two games have left Early Access this week. Right. They've been Early Access for a long time. They would be Slime Rancher mm-hmm. and Long, long. Dark. Mm-hmm. So Slime Rancher we talked about relatively recently. But I know you've played loads more of it. Has you, Have your feelings evolved towards Slime Rancher? Or do you have they stayed the same as in, like, you've probably done a crime, but it's nice? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's been more of the same, but I just really enjoy it. So I've been sticking around and exploring different ways of farming my my slimes and just climbing up through the ranks of the loyalty points and things that you can buy, like, you know, just finishing off my ranch in as much as you can throw money at it. I thought it was a game that ended. 
Well, I mean, there is an... You can trigger a credit sequence. Right. But then after that, it deposits you, you know, like, back in the world and you can just, like, finish off whatever you fancied doing or just keep going ad infinitum, you know? Mm. So, and I think they've also announced a few new slimes that would be coming in, like, in a couple of builds and things. and, and New slimes. New slimes to keep people excited, you know, because I think one of the things that would have been a bit... Oh, is if, you know, the 1.0 build had just been the end, you know? <laughs> so I think they've sort of made definite efforts at keeping it open and keeping going right. and things. The Prison Architect guys had the opposite problem where they kept, after 1.0, they just kept on adding to it at the same rate they were before. And eventually their community kind of rebelled. And said, like, please stop. Like, <laughs> just like finish the stuff that's there yeah, and stop adding new features because it was ending up being disruptive. And they had to yeah. sort of have a moment of like, oh, okay. <laughs> Like, I don't, yeah, I think it's one of those things where I was satisfied with the end point that it gets to with the credit sequence. And then I was also, like, my my ranch was still enough of a living thing that I was able to keep pottering. Hmm. Um, oh, okay. And um, still have a few things to find and open up and, yeah. Cool. That's what I was doing when you guys came round. That's why I didn't bother coming downstairs. I was like, they'll be here for a while. It's fine. <laughs> Whereas the slimes are transient. <laughs> they are until you capture them, imprison them, and make them poop. <laughs> that's um, so. That's just left early access, and so is the long dark. Yeah, mm-hmm. the long dark. Well, the long dark left early access in that it is now the 1.0 build for the like survival sandboxy stuff but also they've added the like the first two episodes of the story campaign okay so and like, that, that's that had the not big been in change. before no i see because that's a game that i've had on i keep a little list of early access games that i'm planning to check out when they finally leave mm. early access because in general mm. i just don't play early access because i want to if there's so many things to play i only have time to give each thing one chance so i might as well wait until the developers think it's ready and that sounds good in theory, but then in practice you realise like some people are just never going to fucking release their thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, because it's out and they're, they're, you know, people are enjoying it, they're making money, they just keep on making money and making people happy and releasing <laughs> good things and updating their game, those bastards. And so I never get to play it because I'm still waiting for or a, a hypothetical And you just sit there watching 1.9. them make bizarre choice after bizarre <laughs> choice in terms of like, mm. Really? That's endearing? <laughs> yeah. I know they can't, but I wish developers could just tell me privately, are you ever going to hit 1.0 or is this mm. like, is this, are you just happy with this? Because some games just kind of don't. <laughs> 0.99999. Or... <laughs> um, but anyway, this has been on my list for ages and I'm so glad that it actually did have a release and I will play it now. I haven't yet, but um, mm. I bought it today. I think if it makes a difference, I think it's only the first, it's, well, it's definitely only the first two episodes of a multi-episode. Mm like season that is yeah i don't know um is it like a thing where you'd play the narrative thing first and then go to sandbox i know that's obviously no one's done that because Um, it hasn't existed before but i think it's a weird one because i haven't really got very far with the story mode stuff but from having played that it does treat it as if the first part is a tutorial so for example it goes through the the very basics of make a fire collect a thing you know here are some like food things here's a you know here are some tools that you'll need you know here's how you get out of this part you know it's it, it drip feeds you that stuff which is weird because of what 
for me it explained and what it didn't explain properly like there's a bit where you're making and this is super early on so it's not spoilers but like you're making rose hip tea like that's the thing that you need to do but i think in the actual game instructions it doesn't tell you that you need to prepare the rose hips only that you need water and rose hips that you've picked and you know over a fire kind of thing but like there's a crucial step missing and i i'd forgotten because it's been a while and so i was kind of like hang on what do i need to do or like you know it was it was one of those moments where i was like hang on what's the thing that i'm missing and and as if i'd been a completely new player i would possibly have just been flummoxed at that point or you know whatever and i think it doesn't teach you how to rest because at the beginning it does it automatically for you you know it's a fade to black once you've done whatever's required of you in the daytime for those first few days um so it was kind of a weird mixture and then i got eaten by a wolf but that was because i was annoyed with my character so i walked him into the wolf (laughs) so it was kind of a spite wolfing um (laughs) to teach him a lesson that he didn't learn because he got eaten by a wolf. Um, so, and also you did it. Well, mm, <laughs> sort of. But, I mean, have you never done that in a game? You just get so fed Walked up with your character, you just, like, kill them. There's that scene in space where Tim is just repeatedly killing Lara Croft to <laughs> relieve some of his st- stress. Like, does no one else do that? Yeah, well, I, I guess I've done that, but in to sort of, in as a gesture of protest against the game... And I don't think I, I never really have that separation between me and the character enough for me to be punishing the character. Oh no, like I, I do. I always feel it's like, like oh, it's me. God, you're <laughs> such a jerk. And like just make them walk off things for a while. Like, you know, that's always quite therapeutic. I definitely made Nathan Drake jump into some cliff walls and some jeeps because his jump is really amusingly pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really feel any animosity towards him. I just found it funny. <laughs> it's just bullying. <laughs> yeah. I bullied Nathan Drake. <laughs> but yeah, so, but it's weird because in the sandboxy stuff, you do actually pick you can pick your difficulty so you can have it so that the wildlife only attacks you if you're um actually aggressing onto it um whereas in aggress the, onto the wildlife yeah that's the phrase isn't it that's a you a start on them yeah, yeah. <laughs> you fucking start i'm a fucking wolf mate i'll fucking take it get out the gauntlet and you whack the wolf across its nose uh, <laughs> throw it down to the ground <laughs> and the wolf's like i don't have gauntlets what am i doing the gauntlet, the wolf's like, like what is this uh, uh, then he do- draws his saber <laughs> then it's on <laughs> do you pour your nose at me sir <laughs> and there was the it was a long dark <laughs> oh God. um I can't remember what we were talking about. Ducks. No, no, because I... Mm. Ducks. The long duck. So, um... Is it a good survival game? Because most survival games I play are terrible. Well, this is... Oh, that was what I was getting at. Because I really... Like, it's such a beautiful game and such a kind of desolate, snowy, kind of gorgeous, threatening experience. And I find it so even if the wolves aren't attacking and things like it's still it's Mm. perfectly possible to die of hypothermia it's perfectly (laughs) possible to give yourself food poisoning by forgetting to cook meat it's you know like there's so much that can go wrong or you just run out of resources to find you know that i it it struck me as a bit odd that the story campaign doesn't have the ability to select 
difficulty because I would have thought if you want people to experience the story, fine, you might want to like judge the level of tension. So perhaps you'd make the settings slightly less unforgiving mm. than in the the sandboxy stuff. But like, it struck me as odd that you don't get to choose at all because for me, I'm like, well, you know, I I. I'm bad enough at survival games that I can find a beginner's mode quite challenging and quite <laughs> tense anyway. So like you've just made it so that I can't efficiently play your game without like loads of saves coming. Mm. Um, How's the narrative, like the storytelling? Like I say, I haven't got far enough in. Um, I know that John played it uh, for work because he was the one reviewing it and um, he wasn't a fan, but I... You know, I didn't read the review because I tend not to if I know I'm going to play something. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I don't know specifically what the what the problems he had with and whether they were things that would bother me as a person who perhaps has slightly different things that I like or don't like in stories. So I, I genuinely don't know. Perhaps the dark was too long. <laughs> but yeah, so I just want to see a lot of Aurora. Mm. Mm. awesome and so yeah and also out this week and something that i believe we've all played a bit of but pip has finished <laughs> i feel like i've just won the podcast so i should just flounce off while everyone else <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, does the work. i'll take the rum <laughs> it's tacoma which feels like it's going to be one of the a game that we come back to a bunch yeah. of times so um, obviously the game came out today so we're not going to do any spoilers or anything mm. yep but um, I guess the first thing would be like, how much has everyone played? So we, I know where our, you know, chat should be calibrated. Well, I've had full Tacoma to completion. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> wow. Great. Uh, I've done the first kind of chunk. And if you play Tacoma, you'll know what that is. I've yes. done exactly the same. Exactly the same. Okay, yeah. good. I actually, I, I made time to play it before this podcast. Um, and I allowed sort of about two hours. And then I got about one hour in and I hit the end of the first chunk. And there's such a natural point to stop yeah. that I just stopped there anyway. I did exactly gonna... the same thing. Like exactly the same thing. Wow. <laughs> we might all be doing it at a totally different point. <laughs> <today>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finished. You also, can this, write this relates... it down and hand it to me and then I can compare. <laughs> <laughs> so it relates to nothing. But um, for the last like two hours um, since playing it, I have been singing the... Uh, my neighbor Totoro theme tune, but with Tacoma as the <laughs> Tacoma, Tacoma. <laughs> so it's the game set on a space station uh, where you wander its corridors and play basically just visual diaries. They're kind of augmented reality diaries of the crew that were on this station. Yeah, the conceit is that the, the station um, records everything. Uh, it's owned by a corporation who sound, if not evil, at least very invasive. Mm. And um, they uh, record everything their, their crew do. You know, the station is wholly owned by them. All the people are their employees. They sign away all their rights to privacy and everything. Um, and uh, you have no information about what's happened there, but no one's around. And when you go there, you're able to see some of these recordings that the station has made of people. Mm. And they are holograms of people walking around. Um and uh you can kind of scrub back and forth there are they're in discrete kind of areas you go into an area and this area has a bunch of stuff that, that happened in it and you can 
all the time that you're in that area you can scrub back and forth through it and it's all one big recording rather than being like four or five audio diaries scattered around the entire location is kind mm-hmm. of one big uh video diary <laughs> yeah and and so the process of watching one of them is kind of like going into this area and then probably watching it from one character's perspective and hearing their conversations and then <laughs> someone will walk and join a different conversation halfway through and then you might watch the rest of that and then scrub back and watch the start of the thing that you ended up wandering into the second time around and yeah yeah it's very organically piecing everything together yeah it's cool that that mechanic um at first i didn't sort of uh like the very first conversation they they draw attention to the fact that you're seeing the people um that someone makes reference to what they're doing um just to sort of remind you like hey this isn't an audio diary this is a bit different uh but for that and the, the next conversation i didn't really see uh that i was gaining much from seeing the people and then um eventually it, it kind of clicked for me when i realized like um i was watching a conversation and someone walks in kind of 60 percent of the way through the conversation um and then i realized if i scrub back i would be able to see where they came from and i could just mm-hmm. sort of follow them in reverse to find out where they came from and then i can see what they were doing before this conversation and um and so that's uh, that mechanic really works for me in, in in that way like there's something very um strangely cinematic even though this is obviously a, a mechanic based entirely around interaction it's very gamey it's a thing that you could only redo in video games um so many movies have done the thing where they cut back and now you see what these two people were talking about just before they entered the room and and that moment where the bit you just play joins into the bit that you already know about um mm. uh is a common you know technique in films to kind of to tell you and now you're back to the things you already know about and and the scene usually ends there and of course when you're playing you stop the recording there because you now you know what happens from then on it's interesting it's oh sorry go on. oh i think we were probably going to say the same thing and that it's a, a, a common thing in in immersive theater yeah that's exactly what i was right. going to say so you can kind of but it with that obviously you don't have the ability to scrub back you have to either go yeah. the next day and and follow a different person or you have to sort of just make a choice and stick with it and then mm. ask what your friend who was also there heard or yeah you know, piece it together after the fact it did remind me of sleep no more actually yeah um, sleep no more was exactly the example i was going to use uh, in that uh that's an immersive theater thing where where uh dramatic scenes are happening all over this big house and you can or big i don't know building <laughs> um and it's up to you who you want to follow and um but that thing of running after somebody as they're just going on their own business and they have no idea you're there obviously more the actor does know you're there but the character doesn't react to you in that situation uh in this case they're holograms so they really can't and it happened in the past <laughs> mm-hmm. time um <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah it's weird that there are little moments of uh there's a, something a little bit awkward about doing that not in a bad way necessarily but it, it jars that that you know, you're kind of running backwards or you're you're repeatedly pausing this person and then trying to figure out where they came from and, and go through their door. Or they'll walk through solid objects or they'll interact with things that aren't there anymore because they're in the past and uh, you're in the present. Um, but it's all, it all makes sense and is consistent. Mm. That's something I really liked was actually watching them go through the series of events and you'd see the point at which that object was last interacted with because it would mm. suddenly, you know, um, join up with yeah. where it actually was for you in the present. Like, you know, mm. you'd have, I don't know, something being moved and you'd sort of see the the shape of it from how the person was moving, but then they'd put it down and suddenly their hands would connect with the thing as mm. it is in front of you. And you're like, oh, they were moving that or they were, you know, like this is the, the thing that got it to how it was mm. or that moved it to being knocked in that way or 
I found, uh, I was wandering around while one of these recordings was playing and I found a kind of glowing thing and, you know, the, the recorded stuff is glowing usually and the, the real world stuff is not. Um, and as I looked closer, I realized it was a cat. I thought, oh, cool, let's see what the cat did in this recording and rewound the, all the way to the start and I went all the way through it and fast forward, the cat does not move. <laughs> <laughs> Cat's asleep. <laughs> the cat, like... It does move at one point in that recording, but yeah. <laughs> but like... then it just settles back down. <laughs> it's so cute. <laughs> Yeah, the attention to detail is really amazing. Like, partly in terms of obviously the amount of, um, it's an extremely detailed world. They've inherited a lot of, it's obviously by the people who made Gone Home, and it's inherited a lot of Gone Home's ability to pick things up, look at them, and then put them back down again. But obviously, a few years on, the fidelity of the items is higher. The, the, the quality of the imagination is, is greater, given that it's set in a space station, not a home. Um, and the, but also the amount of stuff you can interact with, like just being able to fully rack up and play a game of pool mm. in the first area yeah. if you want. That was fun. <laughs> um, and it, it's interesting because there's a sort of, you know, the, the sort of big quote unquote thing you're there to do is to sort of gather data from all of these different recordings. And there's a point because everyone is wearing, they can be tracked because they're wearing the same AR. Not exactly. You're only supposed to be there to pick up the AI. You're just downloading that to to bring it back to the corporation. Sure, but you get that data by reconstructing, like watching those scenes, right? Like, I think you get it either way. Doesn't it doesn't just you happen on time. Oh, yeah, I thought I thought because like, you, you get the ticks when you've so found all the things in this you, in conversation. What happens is, I think I'm not quite. Sh- it's one of those things where I'm not quite sure what to say because I'm not entirely <laughs> sure what is something i would say is that the download happens anyway like i've i've stood by it and checked yeah, that, I it watched was, it. that yeah. the percentage was ticking up as you listen to the things that you can listen to if you access everybody's data terminals when they're open during each of the recordings, it gets to 100% once you've accessed the, oh, the okay. last one of those. Oh, like I, I, I went back to the beginning and just sort of tried that out. Mm. So it's mm. essentially the, the data transfer is always done by the time you've run out of things to do. Yep. But I'm not, I, there's a kind of, I'm not sure whether that is like i yeah once you guys have finished it i will the reason the reason i mention it is because and maybe not just in the context of the fiction definitely in the context of the ui that is the thing that you do in the game because it it highlights each of those because basically when any whenever anyone brings up their personal ar interface you can see that they're doing that and peer over their shoulder and yeah interact with it yeah and and doing that changes a thing on the ui from a question mark to a tick which Mm. is as close to a kind of goal as the game gives you (laughs) right like whether or not that's strictly what you're there to do as a character in terms of like in terms of what am i you know what what is the indication to me that i'm done and i agree i appreciate that it's a lot more analog than that in a bunch of ways Mm. that is the closest thing in the ui to a you know objective complete proceed to the next checkpoint kind of Hmm. indication i found that uh slightly weird so far in that i'm very interested in the conversations that are acted out you know that it's voiced and uh you're seeing these people walk around and then the terminals thing is you you sort of it's kind of like the reading emails part of the game you um except they're not sitting at a computer it's it's an interface that appears in front of them and you interact with that and then there's like usually like four things in there to read and often uh a bunch of them are just 
flavor text or they're corrupted to the point that you can't read them mm-hmm. um and so there's a bunch of stuff there that isn't or doesn't seem to me to be important and i don't really want to sift through unimportant stuff to find the important stuff i'm i'm in kind of like follow the story mode i just want to be told the story basically and so i'm really interested in the conversations and then when i uh the like i say the interface really is sort of prompting you go read all these things or go interact with them at least um and i find i don't really want to i'm like i I just want to watch the conversation and then when i've it i think um even aside from there being actually important information on those on those screens um they want to ensure that you've seen all the parts of the conversation because you know Mm. just standing in one location won't get you all of it you need to go and by interacting with screens you've proved that you've gone over there and you did see this conversation in this room because you've been close enough to press that button Mm. um so it works in that way but I, uh, I'm sort of tempted to just like hit use on them and then quit straight back out and to just sort of tell it, yeah, I've seen it and not actually read the stuff. But that's probably a sacrilege. <laughs> I'd be interested to know what you think at the end of it if you do carry on doing that. Just because like I played it in the total opposite mode where I was happy to just sift through everything and I mean right. everything, like everything I could touch, everything I could pick up, everything yeah. I could So far I read. haven't skipped any of them. I've... Um... I've at least skim read every or skimmed through each mm. thing. And often my skim, if I skim through and I see like 70% of it's corrupted, I assume it's not super important and I don't read it. Um, and then there have been like little bits of important stuff, but I found that there's, there's almost an overwhelming amount of detail, like in a good way, but it's made me realize that like, Oh, I'm, I basically, I'm not going to play this once. I'm probably going to play it like one and a half times and then read loads of interesting things so that people figure out <laughs> about the story and about the way the characters relate to one another. Cause it feels like there's too much to f- hold in yeah. my head. There are a couple of times where I'm like, Oh, I think this might be going on, but I'm not going to bother to check. I'll, I'm sure I'll find out later. <laughs> yeah. And, and obviously it's designed that you'll encounter things relatively non-linearly. There's lots of secrets. Like there's a, there's a big thing to figure out in terms of like, drawers you can unlock that contain letters that you can mm. read that flesh out something else about a character's background and there seems to be there's so much in the environment that the part of me that goes basically like now i'm an hour in and i've given up on the idea that i'll get everything out of this the first time around because it just feels like there's too much and i'm going to need to go through again with more context and kind of watch for things i don't know to mm. look for now yeah which is not a bad thing because games are really good at that but it, it's definitely like initially i found it because also because it's 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 very grounded and kind of realistic it's not a space station but it's naturalistic in its kind of presentation of what that might be like um of course it introduces you to like six characters straight away yeah and allows you to encounter them in a completely non-linear fashion mm-hmm. and it relies on you to intuit who they are and intuit their relationships and so on so i sort of found immediately like okay well we'll go into it's a little bit it's the same it's the same as xing out of the the text stuff that you don't feel is going to be useful right now it's like well i've got to start picking something to focus on yeah in this sea of information that's one thing i actually thought gone home did a bit better was because it was just one thread it meant there was no ambiguity there you just you're immediately or at least i was immediately gripped and, and just on this one person's journey and here the first time there was like six people in a conversation i was just like ah, i don't know <laughs> it took a while for me to settle into it mm. same don't know if that was your experience but i know you played more of it before it was in its final final version as well I played it a couple of times at GDC, so I think I was just automatically comfy with the um, with the interface, um, and so there wasn't any sense of getting to grips with it from that. But I think maybe this is the type of thing where it, this is like my law stuff, where <laughs> it, because it's people and because it's social, 
I've suddenly like gone and and <laughs> kept hold of it in my brain in a way that I can't with like fantasy or with you know all of that stuff and so for me the thing that Tom you're describing as being like there being sort of too much and wanting to sort of find out the story stuff and everything else is a bit sort of by the by for me it was like watching all of these different threads come together and interweave because I was sort of keeping track of them and then it was like oh that one's met up with that one and this thing is happening over here but that it like corresponds to that advert that I saw ages ago and didn't think much of but Mm. have like somehow kept the details in my mind and it's carried on over here and so there was just a sort of feeling of threads knitting together in really satisfying ways and sort of being picked up and dropped and picked up again um and I found that the corrupted bits made it feel not overwhelming because with whenever anything asks me to a hundred percent read something I'm always just like oh no it feels like data scraping but weirdly because it's concealing a bunch of that stuff it doesn't feel like I've had to read all of it Mm. it feels like I've just had to read snippets of it or like you know bits of it are corrupted so I can just skim read the few phrases that are left Mm. yeah I've done that bit but there's something in my brain that that reads uh the corruption as sort of the game signaling don't bother to read this like this is oh, not meant to be a, a it's like not there yet or something um huh. i feel like <laughs> is, i feel like don't uh, play hack mode <laughs> <laughs> uh if i knew that there was going to be four whole conversations i had to read every time i pressed on one of those ar things i would not press on them anymore yeah, because yeah. that was my feeling the but like sometimes of, it's three sometimes it's two it, like, and it could just be like a little, sure. one little snippet and, it feels, and one of yeah. them might just be an advert one of them might be like just a sentence in a chat log mm. you know it's like for me that feels a lot more manageable and a lot less like and now we go to the grimoire cards yeah, like yeah. oh god yeah Chris i certainly will tell don't want later. that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i definitely don't want that um i, thought, I think i want it to be just the important stuff or or maybe just like um i probably just get better at this as I play is like recognizing which is flavor text and which is important. I just want to, I want to find the important stuff really quickly. I don't want to spend any time sifting. Mm. I don't want to have to read something and then find out, oh, this is flavor text. I think it's kind of awkward because for me, because so much also about the relationships, it all felt important. If you Yeah. See so actually I mean. the distinction I'm, I'm talking about really is um, what is personal and what is not. Cause that when it's like an advert that is not personal. And when it's like a, I, I think I read, I'm not 100% sure, but I think I, I, there was a page that's just like part of a novel. And mm. this is a common thing in immersive sims. There'll be a novel that you can read bit by bit in different pages. And I never do, <laughs> even in Deus Ex, which I've played like 25 times. I've never read the novel that's, that's <laughs> distributed throughout that. And so if it is if it is an email or if it is a chat log, I do want to read it. But if it's not if it's not something that person wrote or was written to that person, I don't want to read it. I think there's an... I would be so interested to do a spoiler podcast <laughs> everyone has played it because I want to say so many things <laughs> right now and I'm having to really bite my tongue. I think there's um, is it the other thing that it's doing is it's introducing, I think, a really nicely conceived and interesting version of the future. Mm. Um, and you need to understand the logic of that future in some ways to understand some of the things the characters are talking about which is often the role played by the adverts and the kind of missives and the memos and the the kind of, you know, sci-fi world building stuff that it does. So it, I did find that it's all necessary, but that again contributes to the sense that it's kind of, over, I did find it's overwhelming, which is interesting because that's not an experience I've had with 
I don't think there is a game like this, really, like necessarily. Like, I don't think it fits comfortably into walking sim in the way no. that the games do, because I think the thing that defines walking sim is that they're relatively linear, that you kind of proceed and they kind of glide around and they flow around you. Like, Edith Finch kind of like flows around you as it happens. Like, it, you, you have, you can hit things that you don't necessarily twig on straight away, but it's just one scene naturally flowing into the next scene. It's a very linear narrative where this feels much more like a sandbox where you kind of do all that interpretive stuff. Mm. at your own pace it's like and it's four-dimensional storytelling which could only happen in a virtual game environment i think mm. uh, i think it's justified its gimmick basically by totally, yeah. by telling its story in a way that no other medium could um and i first when i first heard it described um i was slightly cynical about it because i compared it wrongly to everybody's gone to the rapture which is basically just you found the story node. Now you sit passively and watch the mm. story node. Yeah. Um, but it's not like that at all. It's actually because it's, um, you're exploring, uh, plot and relationships through space by rewinding time and following people back through corridors and that kind of thing. It feels like a thing that a game, only a game could do. I can't imagine anything else creating that type of experience. And once you're, and as you're getting these nuggets of information, it's creating that awesome internal process of, of you assembling this enormous jigsaw puzzle. Um, and it feels as though you've had a choice about which bits of those puzzles you've uncovered at any given point so the interactivity of it is also worthwhile um, and i also just i find the the universe as it's been constructed so far to be very very believable um even down to the job your character is doing mm. and the way that it feels as though you're getting like these little messages from a distant um controller and the way they're delivered and the kind of um i, I can't go into too much to spoil things but it feels like you are just kind of a merc on a job in a way and it's a great way to explore that space it's really really well done i think there's a neat thing they do also with the characters um because they're just holograms and they like that whole conceit uh feels uh, at least to be designed to sort of get around the problem of having to realistically render 3d humans which <laughs> is a very difficult problem and a very expensive one to solve um and so they are very abstract and and uh they take they've used that as an advantage to make them also brightly colored they all mm. look a unique color and they also have a giant icon on their back that represents their job <laughs> and so there's a big like medical symbol on the back of the one who is presumably the doctor or um uh, and like a cog symbol on the back of the engineer and so even before you know who these characters are and i still don't know i couldn't tell you all of their names um i you could show me a picture of any of them and i could tell you oh that's the engineer or that's the um mm. Actually, I can't remember any of those. <laughs> uh, operations? There's a sky? There's like a network person. There's a doctor. The security there's person. A... I recognize that icon. There's operations director or something. Yeah, that's the, that's the icon that I keep thinking is engineering, but it isn't. Mm. <laughs> I still don't understand quite what his job really is. Obviously. But it is it is at least distinct from engineering. I, I, if you show mm. me them side by side, I can tell you there's which is botanist. which. Yeah. I think the voices are really good as well. I think the performances have been really, yeah. as Chris said, like naturalistic and, yeah. and believable so far. Yeah, um, and I think it's interesting. I think the, I think yeah, Tom, I think you're completely right that it is about like I think it's about possibly slowing down to kind of put the pieces together mm. rather than feeling like oh I'm done now, time to move on to the next section because it is it's not like Gone Home where you have a very your the person you are in that story has a personal reason to find out why your house is empty mm. and a very specific kind of emotional journey with that game is very linear. Um, whereas this feels like you are a voyeur really like you, your job isn't to uncover the intricate details of everyone's lives find the keys to their secret drawers and read their letters and go through their bins like your job is to do a specific thing so you you know you sort of self you know your kind of curiosity is is more self-directed mm. and i think that what that means is that when you choose 
that you, when you decide that you're done with an area is a lot more self-imposed because obviously yeah there is the bit where it says 100% you know complete take your kit and go to the next area but you're also encouraged to do your own thing a little bit and if you want to keep exploring and scrubbing around and trying to find stuff then you can and i think that's interesting from a player motivation point of view because that's what i mean like i felt the reason i decided oh i'm never going to do this in one go is because i didn't want to feel like trapped in it essentially Mm. because with the absence of kind of hard and fast you have seen all of the story now it's safe to move on flags Because those little tick boxes are deceptive, right? That doesn't mean you've seen everything. It means you've done everything the UI wants you to do. Yeah, sure. Like, um, I find that can be paralyzing. Like that's the kind of the sandbox choice paralysis. That's why I compare it to a sandbox game. It's nothing like an Assassin's Creed or something. But it has a similar kind of, like, self-directed kind of pick what your priorities are. Hmm. Decide when you've finished this kind of attitude. And... Rather than be paralyzed, I've just decided, okay, I'm going to play this once and get what I get out of it. Then I'm probably going to discover everything else that's in this game through conversations and people tweeting it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, actually, weirdly, and I hate to, I hate to do this because it's the thing people do. I suspect the comparison here is Dark Souls. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Not again. And the, the reason for that is purely because there are so many things in, in the front software games that you basically find out about when your mate says, oh, did you go to the thing and find the thing? If you do this before this, you see this. And that informs this later on, right? Like it's, you know, we're doing the Bloodborne playthrough at the moment and that's 100% Tom pointing out to me like, oh, if you go here after this boss, before this thing, you can see this thing happen, mm. which yeah. is not on the same scale as Tacoma, which is all taking place in these compressed environments in a very manageable way. But it's a similar sense of like, I was never going to discover that myself. So... I'm glad that someone else is there to show it to me. And I, just, I, I have this feeling this game is full of that. Not werewolves. <laughs> uh, hidden story. Yeah, I was... Um, it's kind of That's why I, at some point, really wanted to replay Prey. And the ending put me off uh, replaying it a bit. But I, I think I still probably will, because it's that thing you were talking about where um, the... Um, you don't have the context to understand what you're seeing the first time you see it. So it's very um, uh, very hard to process it all. And the second time through, you just got so much more background to everything that's going on uh, that everything makes more, way more sense and you, the meaning of everything is clearer to you. Um, and I think actually probably Prey is... I feel like Tacoma so far has done quite a good job of delivering to me all the information that I, that, mm. um, I would probably need. And I, I get that there's loads more to discover about that. Um, but it, it feels very... Uh, because it is all about the story, the sto- the essential parts of the story are presented to me in a in a, a way where it's easy to see how much of it I've seen. Whereas Prey is the story; there's a huge amount of story in the background that is um, uh, very much down to exploration and about combing through stuff. Um, and I did that probably more in that game than I do in most in most of Sims and stuff. But um, there's to combing through <laughs> stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Tom physically deflated <laughs> now half the size yeah sorry <laughs> um, yeah I should go back to Prey I would say as well that um, it's a very pretty game and there's a delightful sort of chunkiness to all the items and a big mm. smoothness to these enormous bulkheads that you're going through and it's a realistically constructed space station as well where there's like a central zero G section with 
spindles that you get to via these enormous elevators that have gravity because they're slowly rotating around and using their centripetal force to hold you to the floor. Um, there's a real, realize it's the technology, like when you're downloading the AI, you do it with like a, a this lovely chunky book thing. That it's like a DS. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you mean the Nintendo DS? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I, I love the art direction as well. And I, I'm really impressed by it. Really, mm. really impressed by it. It's great. Yeah, uh, we should definitely we should definitely do a spoiler pod. Probably mm. it feels like it's 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 it's, it's, it. it's ripe for that. Yeah, which Pip can lead because finally <laughs> say all the things that you've been biting your <laughs> tongue over. It um yeah because we didn't do one on Gone Home, did we? That must have been around the time that this podcast started because it was also around the time of Gunpoint because mm. uh, Fulbright and Suspicious Developments are <laughs> indie twins in terms of. Uh, uh, our first games came out around the same time and we've both taken three and a half years on our next <laughs> games. Mine yep. is not actually out, which is unfortunate. <laughs> and second game, both set in space. Yep. Yeah, first game set on first game begins with a G. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I was really trying to find a gone home gunpoint link there. There was a lot to... There are light switches in both of them. Mm, that's mm. true. That's true. Mm. One of them is about rewiring buildings. The other one is about a building. A building. <laughs> you are you def- you're definitely inside a spaceship in Tacoma at, at some point, <laughs> and then inside a space station. Mm, that's true. Both of those things are in heat sig. Yep. Wow. In, in heat signature, <laughs> the spaceships are bigger and the space stations are smaller. <laughs> that's the main difference between the games, I'd say. Other than that, it's more or less Tacoma. <laughs> Have you put, ported uh, Gunpoint's like save rewind thing into heat sig? Uh, no. Okay. Because when I made Gunpoint, it was in Game Maker 8, and save and load in Game Maker 8, they told you not to use it. Like, don't use this, it's not supported, doesn't really work. And then I used it, and it worked absolutely perfectly. <laughs> and then in Game Maker Studio, which I'm using for Heat Signature, they tell you, don't use our save feature, it doesn't work. And I used it, and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, fine, I'll stop using it. <laughs> Just to see who's paying attention. <laughs> yeah, also, it was... Um, uh, it kind of clashes a bit with a randomized game because if you can save and load, then you can just scum it and get the best stuff all the time and never suffer right. any negative consequences. And so there's no kind of story to your journey. You don't have to ever deal with drawbacks or improvise or anything. You can always just make sure everything went perfectly for you. Mm. It fits much better. Gunpoint was you know, essentially a puzzle game where you, at some point you're going to just do the right solution and you have to to progress. Um, whereas Heat Sync is much more kind of just let's see what happens <laughs> if you mm. fuck up. So the approach I've taken instead with Heat Signature is that um as of like a few weeks ago there is now nothing in the game that can kill you instantly (laughs) everything that can kill you does so in a way where it's like now you're in the danger state and here's how you get out of the danger state so there's always a way to recover from death um the ways of recovering from death may be too difficult (laughs) because some people are still finding it like hugely frustrating um so we might need to tweak those. But uh, yeah, the last thing to go was, um, so it's always like if someone shoots you aboard a ship, they'll pick you up and throw you out the airlock and then you have a chance to pick yourself up with your own pod and, and save yourself that way. Um, if you got shot in space for a while, that was instant death. And then I updated that so that now there's a recovery mini game. So your ship is like beeping and spinning and out of control, but you've got to like hold D to seal the coolant flaps and don't press S because the <laughs> flame vent is popping <laughs> and the, uh, the fuel gasket is totally missing so you've got to hold W and it's like a little chaotic kind of thing to make you panic but um, if you do all that right then you, your pod survives 
And then the last thing that could still kill you instantly was if you're on a ship and then you shoot a fuel barrel or throw a breach grenade, something that's going to destroy the entire room you're in, that used to insta-kill you. And uh, then I was testing it out at Develop and somebody playing the game for the first time completed the tutorial, went out into the wide world, took their first mission, boarded an easy uh, ship, and then was just immediately killed because a different ship crashed into it, (laughs) which also destroys the module and kills you if you're inside it. So they had the harshest possible experience. And I realized, like, this situation is just way more interesting if you get thrown out into space and you're bleeding and you have to catch yourself, so you are in mortal peril, but you're not instantly killed. Like, if there's just a way to recover, it's always more interesting. It's never better to instantly die. Which is interesting because gunpoint was partly born from the genesis of like a gun should always kill you yeah like being killed with yeah <laughs> yeah kill you, you kill someone do, else. you've either got to have the save every five seconds or you've got to have some way of recovering right. <laughs> interesting but yeah no we definitely come back to tacoma because it does seem great i think it's my game of the year so wow wow but it's going to be like uh life is strange where i just get sick of like having the same conversation where i sort of stick up for it if you see what i mean so like by the end of the year it'll be like it'll be my my game of the year don't ask me about it (laughs) i'm done (laughs) do you think that people are not going to like it as much as you did I think it's more that the comment sections of anything oh give like a <laughs> skewed thing. Mm. So I've, I haven't waded in, but it's like, you know, there's a lot of, so why would I play this rather than a game that does storytelling, but also lets me shoot things. You know, there's a lot of that kind of thing or like, you know, yeah, but how long is it? Or, you know, uh. like all of that stuff that's a little bit. Like, it's one of those things where it's an amazing game that definitely won't be for everybody. And I hate when you have to fly the flag for something that isn't for everybody. As in, I'm happy to do it, but then you have a lot of pushback. And when a game is, like, something that you personally really enjoyed or, you know, that you Mm. got a lot out of, sometimes that can just get really wearing. And that happened a lot with Life is Strange. It was kind of like having to explain to people why it wasn't for everybody, but why I really loved it. And then hearing all of the criticisms Mm. back at me each time was just Mm. like, you know, I think by, by the time we got to the advent calendar slash game of the year stuff at the end, I was just like... Well, it's on my list and I'm done talking about it. It's just there. <laughs> so, uh, mm. and that might sound really combative to like start with, but it's just like, it's one of those things where it definitely is the front runner right now for me. Yeah. But, like I, I can sense myself getting like a bit, why yeah. am I having these conversations again? Yeah. That's something I don't miss about games journalism. Just <laughs> having to defend your opinion or, or just knowing what the commenters are going to say and having to like in your review preemptively defend. I know you're going to think this, but <laughs> also it's like Tacoma is really clear about what it is. Like I, I don't think anyone's going to get the sense that it's a shooter or any other, other sort of game. Well, I saw a comment that someone was like, Oh, I, this isn't the game I thought it was at all. And I think they thought it was going because it's be in space. Or so, like it was a kind of psychological thriller. All right. And I was kind of like, well, I mean, like, I mean, I, I was a bit, oh. I, well, that's I, actually, Gone what? Home did that as well, where it sort of seemed like it's a horror game a for a, yeah. <laughs> Which is in Gone Home. <laughs> yeah. In Tacoma, you mean. Yeah, also there. I love the, I think someone, I, I, I loved that tweet about the Gone Home original soundtrack, which was like, see, there is a ghost in Tacoma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting, like, so... I'd love to play something like Tacoma that was... In Gone Home, sorry. Yeah. um, That was multiplayer, 
<laughs> what? Bear with me. Because, so I was just thinking about this because I, I think it's, it's really fascinating and it's really interesting because as someone used to work in, in, in interactive theatre and immersive theatre, if you told me we're going to present those scenarios and those stories to the audience in a way where they can reverse time and see everything, I would assume that would break it and ruin the mystique <laughs> because the kind of, the, the, some of the excitement of those shows is how imperfect your view of it is and you come out of it and you ask your friend who you got yeah. separated from at the start like what did you see and then mm. after it's afterwards in the pub that you figure out what actually happened because you saw this character at a time when the other person didn't so on. and i'd love to see a game do that to some extent and i think i think they do because i think they do that sort of passively with people and i think inevitably like i said people are going to encounter aspects of tacoma differently from each other and piece mm. it together together um and that maybe is a kind of passive multiplayer or kind of, you know, meta game multiplayer or something like that. But it's, it's interesting because it does, what I'm saying is it, it doesn't spoil it being able to rewind and, and rewatch and kind of no. mine it for narrative. It actually doesn't. And that sort of, I have no broader point there other than that sort of contrary to my. Well, I think part instincts. of that is because if you're doing something with interactive theater, you either have to like, lose the characters for a while like have them step out of view and then present a different timeline because what Tacoma does is that the um the recordings that you get are they're imperfect they're also from all over the place time-wise like one will be from three months right. ago one will be from a couple of days ago That's true, yeah. like all of that stuff so you're yeah, you're cool. sort of trying to work with that and they're such short snippets and y- that you have to pair them with the um the written documentation or even just things that you find in the in the environmental storytelling Mm. um to actually figure anything out so it's still the sense of having absolutely imperfect information and the fact that time is finite so you end up you know maybe missing a few things or you know just choosing to move on or you know thinking do you know what i'm gonna like not pick around this person's private life in that way um Mm. and so i think you still end up with a sort of this is the bare bones of what has happened and then the amount of flesh that you can put onto that and the amount of extrapolation you can do or want to do is then up to you so you're kind of having the conversation that you would have down the pub with your friend in your own head Mm. because of how it fragments everything yeah that's a good point and you definitely couldn't easily do that in a no because if you're following someone from room to room or you have to like really signpost that it's a completely different time zone yeah in this room or you know like it's it's it would be a very complicated undertaking i guess yeah yeah certainly not as elegant i think having these um like the sort of the group scenes that you go into and have to rewind and unpick they're almost like this knot and you kind of pick at these threads and as you follow people back into their rooms i think it gives you a really good sense of their individual characters and their kind mm. of personhood in a way mm. that um i've not really experienced in other game storytelling techniques and um, it reminded me of the film time code um which is i think it's called time code um mm. where the film is segmented into four yeah blocks and uh the entire film happens in real time and it's which pretty much one shot i think in when he was executed events occur in real time <laughs> and it's a it's kind of a thriller and uh it's a very interesting experiment but it fails because 
uh, the characters are forced to stop doing things so that you can concentrate <laughs> on another quarter of the screen. Yeah. So you'll get a bit where like two people will have an argument and then one of them will just have to brood furiously for three minutes <laughs> while the person who had the argument goes and does something else, which is yeah. what you're supposed to be watching. And you're not actually watching characters at that point. You're watching the kind of god author like move these pawns around. Yeah, and they, they have to pick which one you should be watching because they have to pick which one you get the sound from. Right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Whereas this feels like a really elegant way of doing that. Right. You know, actually giving you the ability to go back through the storyline and follow people back through different rooms. Yeah. Uh, it's really, really effective. Yeah, it's great. I have had bits where, I mean, um, only momentary, but like I'm trying to listen to a conversation and other people walk in and they're having a conversation and it overlaps with my conversation, the conversation I'm trying to listen to and I can't hear it anymore. And yeah. I have to like figure out where to stand that that conversation gets filtered out and this one still plays. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. It feels very naturalistic when that happens. It feels sort of like, and you know yeah, something about that conversation yeah. when someone walks in talking to the ship AI yeah. and you now know why they say the thing they say when they walk into the room. Mm. And yeah. Yeah. And I actually had much worse problems with audibility in Prey, which just has a very traditional audio diary system, but, uh, doesn't do a good job of like pausing them when people are talking to you in real life. And those things just clash like hugely and, uh, you know, really cause me problems. Mm. Yeah, it makes it. To be honest, it's a really interesting comparison in like 2017's best fully realized space station game, <laughs> yeah. where a story happens. I actually like, kind of thought when I played Prey because the the environmental, or like reading emails in that game was so good, um, and the way it had that list of crew that you could um, go through. It was such a um, a great experience exploring that place and learning about the people there. I actually kind of wondered if the you know if the Fulbright people were playing that and thinking oh shit <laughs> i've got some competition here yeah they are very different although to be honest i would have i would happily receive like either story in that mode like yeah interesting. like yeah. i would happily have seen tacoma's mechanics used to tell praise story with none of praise like you know system shockness attached yeah. to it like it would also have worked actually no i think so yeah i'll, I'll clarify that tacoma's mechanics would work for telling you the story praise mechanics would not work for telling you the story <laughs> yeah um, like I'm going to turn into a cup and just roll <laughs> this conversation about how our relationship's going to pan out. That could be amazing. Though, yeah. <laughs> now that you say, um, but yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, I think um, Tacoma is way better at, at audio diaries because it does something different to audio diaries and something that works much better. I, to be honest, I think just just putting them so even if they were audio only putting them so front and center and having a really good interface for scrubbing back and forth and telling you where the important stuff is, mm. uh, that in itself is a big deal. Um, but I think I prefer Prey for reading emails because the way that was in the world and so seamless just made me really keen to like dive into each one. So the only thing that I think has been a little source of friction for me in Tacoma so far is um, I'm playing on a really big monitor. Um, and because it tends to... you, you It's a lovely interface. You sort of pull... Basically, what you're seeing when you access someone else's heads-up display is is almost like the tabs they have open at the time is kind mm. of the impression, and they kind of fling out to sort of the corners of the screen, um, which I found sort of like not you get used to it, but they're quite they're quite zoomed in even at yeah. max res, yeah. like they're really close to you as if they were in your eyes, which is what they're supposed to be. And then you also have the option to zoom in on them, which seems like yeah. whoa. And so I found it a little bit sort of like. Almost everything that occupies the screen real estate, and this is such a dry thing to say about such a kind of <laughs> well-conceived game, would have been like more pleasant to just read through, were it like t- occupying two thirds of the center of the screen space. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, just from pure UI friendliness point of view, like moving things close to the center of the screen, basically. I think that's a concession to the consoles, um, because it's out on consoles as well. Like TV reading, playing on the telly that's like perhaps ten, fifteen feet. Yeah, away from you. yeah. 
I do find though I'm playing on a PC with a gamepad and I end up just switching to mouse for those sections because controlling mm. that with a gamepad it works but it's much more cumbersome than, than a mouse it's interesting because it, it, it's totally in a comparison I would never make it in any other context but I've been playing a bit of Warframe this week which I'm not going to talk about any more detail <laughs> Warframe versus Tacoma which is the better <laughs> well so weirdly so I'm going to I'm writing something about Warframe uh, for Eurogamer and um, so I'll um, but the one thing that I've had, I've butted up against having never played the game before is that game makes me feel powerfully sick. And I don't get sick, hmm. like, from third-person games. I don't get sick from first-person games. I barely get sick from VR. I'm one of the lucky people who can mostly do VR. Like, first couple of hours of Warframe, like, had to go to bed immediately. Oh my like, God. just, like, given that it's, you know... You thought the... I was overreacting when I said... No, I just was like, well, it made you feel seasick. That's weird. And then, and so I then tried playing on PlayStation... And I didn't get on. Like, uh, frame, it makes frame me it. feel so headachy and so sick. I can't play it on yeah. PC. And I fixed it now. Mostly, um, I can play it in short bursts. <laughs> um, like speaking hazard pay for this, really. Um, <laughs> like I can play it in short bursts, and a lot of that required because what it one of the problems is it has very small text that it is thrown to the sides of the screen, hmm. um, and and then it. Uh, fixes that stuff to like motion bob and things like the ui is attached to your head which is exactly the mechanic from tacoma which is why i bring it up um and what i've discovered is um that makes you feel really 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 ill tacoma doesn't have this problem because it fills your vision with it and you only ever experience it like you load it and it's like a static screen in front of you Hmm. um warframe is essentially what that ui would be like to actually have you know when you see characters walking around it's sort of in front of them as they're walking around Hmm. um and you you know, I mean, unless this is where Tacoma is going with all of this, like you just throw up constantly as far as I can tell. <laughs> so, um, the way I fixed it in Warframe was by disabling all, basically making the, the UI static is an option, thankfully, so that it doesn't move. Um, and, uh, basically telling it that my monitor is a lot smaller than it is, not resolution, but it allows you to like define the boundaries of your oh, yeah. screen for rendering the UI and just shrinking that. So it's like half the size of my actual monitor and it forces it to draw the UI close to the center of the screen. Suddenly means I don't feel sick anymore. And it was just an interesting kind of like, huh, like weird to encounter that in two completely different contexts this week. But like, yeah, um, Tacoma doesn't have the same problem because things are so big. And when you're concentrating on them, you're only concentrating on them. You're not controlling a coral fetish ninja <laughs> yeah they, uh, coral the fetish ninja? they look sort of well, all warframe characters look like they're made of like hr guy gurian kind of oh, organic right. growths like coral <laughs> yeah mm. very old. they're very bony it depends on the warframe you're using right to some extent but they're all very kind of like you know uh, scribbly they're gribbly <laughs> do you mean the Grenier? No, they're all gribbly. Everyone's gribbly in Warframe. Does the Grenier look like Maggie Smith in a bonnet something? They do, yeah. The Grenier look like Maggie Yeah, that sounds brilliant. I would play Maggie Smith in any role I should have. I know, I wish they'd gone full full on with it. <laughs> should always go full Smith. Full Maggie Smith in a bonnet. But like the, yeah, most of the Warframes are extremely like bony, gribbly, gribble men and women with like spindly <laughs> arms and... Like well, okay, I'm and... going to agree to disagree because I don't think that that's fair or true. <laughs> I I would be amazed if you didn't agree with that. That seems like a weird <laughs> thing not to. I mean, you've seen Warframe characters, right? They're extremely gribbly. Would you yeah, not agree? They're kind of like some of them are smoother than others, but they tend to be like organic shapes and yeah. they're not like space marines in the traditional mold. They're no, not at all. Do you know? I don't think I have a separate category in my brain for Warframe versus Warface. No, oh, yeah. they're very, very different games. <laughs> they, I haven't played either, 
and they've all just been in my dim peripheral knowledge. Yeah, free to play. And yeah, they start with Worf. I said <laughs> <laughs> that I've not played Warframe. I've only ever seen videos of it. It's all right. I've played it a little bit. Of it. So didn't like it, it had a reputation for being the console thing that you would play because Destiny wasn't on PC. Rather, mm. you know, the PC thing that people who like frustrated destiny players would play, <laughs> play um but obviously now destiny 2 is coming to pc i think they've had to like mm. up their game and they've up made a bunch coral. of changes and like they've now got like dynamic um like day and night cycles on these like expansive <laughs> say worlds bonnets. that they're now <laughs> they've got like an open world section they're adding as yeah well like, like that. that like that's the whole focus of the new thing and they're yeah. like giving like graphical updates to like a whole bunch of yeah. stuff so it's like it, it's very kind of huh <laughs> aware the white walkers are coming absolutely <laughs> nothing like uh tacoma it was <laughs> and yet does anyone um know what happened to the was it ghost recon online oh yes yeah. free to play so that was all right it's really weird that you mentioned that <laughs> because i was at the studio that developed it last week oh wow <laughs> that was a cool game actually that's, that's a hell of a fucking that, segue that, i think because like the place that warframe and warface occupy in my brain is games that i haven't played but i think might be a bit like ghost recon online which i did play <laughs> so that, warframe that was like, is oh, very man, sort of fantasy slashy kind of third person running around sci-fi oh, okay. coral people game yeah Where <laughs> um, Warface is like more traditional military shootery. Is that Crytek? Okay, so maybe yeah, War... Crytek. Warframe is Warface is Crytek. Oh, yeah. My mum won't buy me card game. Mm. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> is it free to play? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um... <laughs> and I think they really push it in, um, like, especially in Russia and China. Yeah, it's places. huge in Russia and China. Um, which is where I was last week. Amazing. Wow. This... So many takeaways to yeah. your trip. Um, no, but it's weird that you mentioned Ghost Recon Phantoms because, or Ghost Recon Online, because, um, yeah, I was at Ubisoft Singapore last week. That's why I was on the pod last week. Um, talking to them about free to play. And then I went to China for China Joy, which is China's Gamescom, except it's like two Gamescoms and it's fucking massive and it's 38 degrees <laughs> and the aircon's barely holding it together. Hmm. Um, which is predominantly free to play games because that's the only kind of games that there are, um, in the future or Asia, <laughs> which, <is the> future. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, it was interesting because there's definitely a, um, uh, people, we can segue off Tacoma to that, right? Because yep. there's, it was a really interesting trip because <clears throat> it made me, I had loads of, loads of thoughts about how the games industry feels different in different parts of the world. But the thing that really struck me is that the sort of the absolute necessity of free to play, um, and the absolute so in China Joy is the same size as Gamescom. I think on paper it feels a lot bigger. I think one of the reasons it feels a lot bigger is because it's just free to play mobile games. Were Do you a lot smaller? <laughs> 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 like that would also explain it. That would also explain it. <laughs> no, I think I'm I just... borrow a Chris. <laughs> yeah. There's a little press tag. <laughs> I employed the tiny drone me. <laughs> no, uh, I was... did you check? When I didn't know. Now you've there. blown my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, because you know, you're like, you like you still looking around. It looks like a sort of E3 show floor kind of setup, but yeah. across like ten hangars. Bloody, uh, it's massive. Oh, and you realise like what? I'm, what aren't I seeing? And you're like, oh, I can't see any single player games <laughs> in this in this 140,000 square meter venue. Blimey, there isn't one. 
like it's giving me the sweats just all. thinking about this <laughs> i'm not joking yeah there isn't one. Oh my god um and there are basically no games here that anyone would buy outside of certain booths outside of the one hall given over to western developers which is the quieter hall hmm. there's nothing like all of the developers that are there with an audience tailored uh, with a game tailored to the, to the to the chinese audience have a multiplayer game they have a free to play game um or a mobile game or both Hmm. Or all three. Um, and, you know, it was kind of eye-opening. Like, I don't necessarily think every every trend everywhere is necessarily going to go to one place. I think, you know, regional tastes are an absolutely a thing. And I think there are reasons why the games industry has grown in the ways it has, in the ways that it has, in the places where it has. Um, but it made me, I think the most important thing is it made me recontextualize everything I think I know about the decisions that publishers in the in Europe and America make about the games that they publish because I hadn't really considered, oh shit, Chinese market is absolutely massive. Hmm. The Southeast Asian market is growing extremely quickly. And, you know, you wonder like, so so guess what Bethesda game was there? What what was the one Bethesda game at China Joy? The card game? No. What Bethesda games are there? <laughs> was it? Was it old Elder Scrolls Online? No. No, I was just gonna, that's, that's free, like a free to play That is no. free to play now. I think so. Nope. nope. Is it Arx Fatalis? <laughs> nope. Although I did find out an interesting. Um, so bonus interaction. So I was out, um, I was out with Ubisoft because I was visiting their Shanghai studio and their mm. Singapore studio. Did you know that Dark Messiah and Ma- Magic, um, as in Arcane, was Arx Fatalis 2? And then when Ubisoft really? agreed to publish it, it became a uh, magic game. Oh, right. There you go. Transported it to a different universe. Huh. What that is I found that out at two in the morning from a man who works for Ubisoft. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. Like, give us three. It was Fallout Shelter. Beth- okay. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Of course. Oh right. <laughs> I was thinking, did Fallout have a match three game? <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. Like, yeah. And that was that was what was so fascinating about it. It was this like, you like, oh, hang on, that's like, I think it's it, you know arrogantly you can you can arrogantly assume that like if something doesn't fit into the kind of trends and popularities that we understand mm. or something's written off as kind of like a you know, a free-to-play game nobody likes. I don't know. I had friends who were super into it. Like, I, Fallout Shelter is a bad example. But but I knew one person who had to delete it off her phone because it was <laughs> just like, I cannot trust myself with this game anymore. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, watching, like, oh, hang on, this is where it makes sense. Like, this is where it fits in. This is where it is the thing that gets you into this yeah. market. Like, There's an amazing story on Idle Thumbs. Uh, Chris Rumor played Fallout Shelter a lot. And um, there's a population cap in it, it turns out. And it doesn't stop people getting pregnant. It just stops them giving birth. Oh, God. <laughs> and so you end up with like a, a shelter full of pregnant women who <laughs> couldn't give birth because it would exceed the population cap. And so he had to go out and like kill people to isn't make way for a, the birth. Isn't there a myth uh, in uh, like Greek or Roman mythology where somebody was pregnant and then another person like bribed the goddess of childbirth to just not let her give birth oh god i can't remember who that was and then someone had to distract her so that she could actually have the baby it might have been hercules <laughs> might have been mm. i can't remember i will look that up very uh, early draft of the handmaid's tale <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like so that was one side of it was that like okay well if you have an audience where this is just how games are, and this is just how, and which is not to say that, um, th- which is not to say actually that, um, the audience is exclusively interested in those games because they're not. Um, it's that the kinds of games that can be officially published tend to fit into those categories. And there are a bunch of really interesting social, 
and business reasons for that um, to do with who has monopolies. The rules on publishing in China are very, mm. very restrictive. Um, however, grey market is very, very, very present. So you end up in weird situations where Ubisoft or their booth are advertising Assassin's Creed Origins, a game that will never be published in China officially. It can't. <laughs> it, it, it breaks every single censorship rule all Assassin's Creed games do. Yeah, Assassin's Creed has a really big following in China. <laughs> so they're going to do a mobile game mm. that has none of those things in it. <laughs> like yeah. um, like a mobile MMO RPG thing with mm. um, with none of the kind of social cult, like the... Because the, the strictures on, on, on the censorship is so tight. And Did you learn anything about how if... Or it, when free-to-play is the norm, what things tend to elevate people to consumer awareness so for example you know in 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 the uk it would just be a case of like okay we've got an incredibly crowded mobile market where people are really reluctant to pay anything and certainly more than a quid for an app so like you know you look at ways that people are sort of trying to get heard whether that's like you know particular review sites or whether that's just being featured on the app store or leveraging particular connections or you know having particular celebrities talk about their game but like is there a sort of um a commensurate thing in the chinese market for pc games so it's interesting because the moving off pc games um so Steam's in a really weird position where Steam is basically allowed to be, is almost like a sanctioned black market in China. Like it's allowed <laughs> to sell anything um, for now. Um, a few games are actually officially sanctioned by the Chinese government. Most aren't, but you can buy anything. Mm. Like, you can't play it online necessarily without a VPN, but you could, if it's a single player oh. game, you could buy it. Um, and there's the Chinese version of Dota that has some of the heroes. like Yeah. So the, there are like, the way to understand it is there are sort of tiers of, availability in china but the bottom being completely un unapproved gray market you can get it if you can get it from hong kong kind of thing mm. and then the tier above that is like um sort of published in reduced form with a partner and then the tier above that is it's been adapted for the chinese market which will be like removing all the skeletons in dota's case um and then the tier above that is uh having catering specifically to the chinese market in some ways like offering chinese new year's events which is why you see a lot of them in games now um and the tier above that is offering things exclusively to the chinese market uh which uh which um dota does hit um but counter-strike go doesn't and counter-strike is moving up in that particular way can like valve are doing a specific version of counter-strike for china now yeah didn't be have a Chinese server. It had a Chinese yeah. siloed off, it had and then they merged them. Yeah, it had a Chinese server because um, that was the the first time that Eve had ever, you know, there mm. ever been a separate yeah. world in Eve because the whole thing was everyone's in one world, and that's because running an online service in China is, is subject to the same restrictions yeah. and laws. Um, so you'd have to connect with the VPN otherwise, and that's just been cracked down on last week. So. Um, you had trouble just even like getting on the internet out there, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't access Google, you can't access Facebook, and the, <laughs> the reasoning for that is is actually really interesting because it's not. I mean, there are. I could I could go on about this because it was a really like it was a very intense week, um, like and a very informative week at a meeting with the Chinese government to speak about exactly this. So, <laughs> like, it, you know, I I've got a lot of this information in my brain now, and a lot of it's going to go into into written work and so on, but. Um, it's interesting. Like, there's there are there are so many points that you would necessarily recall from, but there are points where you sort of understand it. And actually, the absence of Google and Facebook is an interesting one because it's a developing economy, it's a developing digital economy. In some ways, it's a huge digital economy in a lot of ways. The absence of Google and Facebook and so on for the amount of time that's, that's, that's been gone has allowed 
Tencent to become what mm-hmm. it is, which is a a a reasonably uh, you have to consider it a competitor and equal to those companies, and that would never have happened had the competition and their monopoly just be kept away from that economy. So that should I don't know which China's actually been getting stricter over the last ten years. So. I don't necessarily want to say that the future is walls come down and, and things merge because it might not be that way. But if they did, like if, if China just opened up to foreign business tomorrow, they would have a powerful homegrown domestic kind of um, digital uh, business. It's interesting watching keeping track of what Tencent are investing in as well because yeah. they have obviously this riot they invest in tens in um high res they've i think they've just picked up a share in milky tea haven't they who mm. make coffin dodgers and i was like okay sure um but yeah it's kind of one of those things that you sort of that is coming up more and more now yeah it was well, a big deal when blizzard made a deal with tencent it is world of warcraft published through tencent netties netties uh, okay yeah so that's that's through netties. well they co-own a company Gotcha. So, like, so interestingly, weirdly, I know loads about Chinese business law. Basically, <laughs> so you either you either agree to have your game published entirely by a Chinese partner, mm. or typically now you co-own. So Valve worked through Perfect World, Blizzard worked through NetEase, or you co-found a company in China with a Chinese partner. Right. Basically, the right to do that. That's what Blizzard did. Blizzard yeah. are kind of quite far ahead of the game. Ubisoft are weirdly further ahead than everybody else because they were the first games company in China, including Chinese companies. <laughs> they incorporated in Shanghai. 20 years ago before Tencent even existed so they got ahead of the curve and now have an incorporated Chinese brand that can do that stuff yeah the other interesting about China that shapes a lot of this is that consoles were banned for 15 years (laughs) from 2000 to 2015 so you can't um so a lot of the tastes and things like particularly for kind of like triple a action game single player stuff that you might think about you have to frame in that light it's not purely like some kind of you know uh, theme of 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 trend it's it is a kind of enforced thing as well mm. that like the games that were available to people were pc or mobile and that trended towards mo- free to play and mmos and rpgs and mobas and things quicker mm. necessarily but yeah um really super interesting kind of that's fascinating the other thing that i wanted to mention actually from it um was uh i don't necessarily think we need to be worried about vr as a business I don't think we need to be worried, worried about, about it in what it's, sense. <laughs> as in, is it going to go away? Has it been a flop? Because it's oh, right. huge in Asia. Like, hmm. and you see it implemented in much more interesting, more practical ways. So, um, a lot of booths had demo units for things that will originally eventually be installed in like shopping malls and cinemas. So like VR experiences that you sit in and you, the headset is on a cable that you pull out of a seat rest or something like that. And you put it on, you have the VR experience for a bit and then you go about your day basically. Hmm. Um, loads and loads and loads of booths used vr for marketing purposes so like you'd have a game like a free-to-play mobile game or a free-to-play card game or something but it would be attached they would have like an attached vr experience set in the same franchise yeah so um thing one future of vr is marketing basically like well, marketing for other things. Noth- like nothing else in terms of like it it blocks out the noise of a noisy show floor right yeah. like if you could get somebody at rezzed or at the pc gamer weekend or something and jam a headset on them so that they don't hear your rival the next you know booth over hmm. like saying hey buy our thing instead then you know yeah it's automatically a more streamlined more focused experience 
Yeah, totally. And but it made me it made it recontext again. It recontextualized it in a kind of like, oh, huh. We've been thinking of everything from a kind of, will you buy this, have it in your home, yeah, and then buy software for it kind of point of view. And actually, if you think about those ways, it makes a lot more sense, mm-hmm. and it's it's a lot more kind of um, believable as a as a as a thing. The other thing was that uh, it was esports. Like again, exactly the same thing. Oh, huh. Esports. It's a marketing tool. Um, uh, a fun the thing that stood out about China Joy relative to E3 or Gamescom was that every single booth and the booths are massive has a stage attached to it, and the job of the stage is to draw people to the booth basically. And like that was everything from like a BMX show to rapping, lots of dancing, lots of just dance actually, like just dance shows and things, like competitions on stage. Um, loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of models like mm-hmm. that was one of the biggest differences i think uh, or one of the ways that i that it feels like um e3 and gamescom have changed quite a lot and china joy still feels like yeah. from previous era in that regard the concept of booth babes is kind of gradually phased out which is it was really interesting it was really interesting being in a meeting where this came up with with officials who would be sort of judging these things and one of the things that they say that they are very keen to weed out of games and censor games for is erotic content and sexually provocative content. And yet what was really interesting was that, A, the show was far more about putting women in dresses in front of people than what are now self-regulating shows elsewhere. But also a lot of West, a lot of the games themselves have much more sexually explicit presentation and advertising. And also a lot of the Western games going to China um, like I saw Torchlight over there, which I think is published by Tencent in China. Hmm. Um, might even be a free to play thing in, in Torchlight. Torchlight Two, hmm. which you think of as kind of like cutesy, um, kind of chunky, kind of characterful art. Like I think the I think the mascot for Torchlight in the in in America and Europe is isn't it the the lady with the red hair and the torch? Like she's carrying a torch and like has has the dog. But she's I can't remember now. But she's wearing like overalls and a thing. Mm. In um in China, it's a woman in a corset in a kind of backbreaking League of Legends pose and like <laughs> boobs pulling out. And obviously, someone from the Torchlight team has to have approved that and made it specifically for that audience. And that was just an observation. Like it's mm. just it's more that you know the censorship seems to be ironically pushing in the opposite direction to the way everything else is actually mm. going. But the like. On all those stages, among one of the seemingly interchangeable with all those different forms of like stage entertainment was esports. It was like have people playing a tournament for your uh, esports presentation style tournament for your mobile racing game, for your tanks game, for your RPG, yeah. for whatever. And it was interesting because, which is not to say that esports is always marketing, but it felt like, oh, huh, like hmm. this feels like the pragmatic implementation of this thing. But is it technically esports, or is that more in the vein of having a live-action rendition of when somebody does the advert of the multiplayer thing, where it's everybody on a couch shouting and having fun and drawing attention to the thing, so you just pay a bunch of people to essentially reenact that to draw attention and make the game look so really social? the full right? spectrum. There was the full spectrum. So there was the full spectrum, because Intel Extreme Masters was there, which is legit esports. Yeah. So there was like... And then it went all the way down to what you're saying, which is the kind of like for show esports things. And then in the middle were like legit esports tournaments that had been like heavily sponsored by a publisher to be attached to their booth to advertise their game, even if they weren't fully related. And that was sort of felt like the middle zone where it was like fundamentally a sales exercise, but it still had the kind of legit competition or real teams or whatever. You do see a few of those at Gamescom. 
and places right. like that when you you go along and they've set up like a stage and they've set up like a rows of seating yeah uh where there's a, a small smattering of people who want to know what's going on but they, they've done that they've tried to create a little mini sports arena even for something that no one cares about uh, no one has ever heard about um so that does feel like the, that does exist it doesn't seem to be especially effective um in the conferences i've been to at least mm. no um but it does sort of, yeah, it just creates a spectacle, right? Yeah, like, exactly. But yeah. no, what I'm getting at in terms of the, but is it really an esport thing is like not to open a stupid conversation that just is annoying. Um, <laughs> it's more just to say, are, are you talking about games that actually have a legit organic esports scene that is sustained and has seasons and it's a, you know, like, or, or some other actual structure or longevity? Or do you just mean that there was a competition with money attached? I think I'm talking about the presentation of it. I think I'm talking about what it means. Like, so the, 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 the weakness of esports is that no one really agrees or understands what they are. Like right. you set your you set your stall out at a particular point, and if you work in the industry, you probably set it out exactly the same terms you just did. Mm. But God knows from the outside, people just think of esports as kind of an entertainment, mm. or, or sorry, as, as an entity, <laughs> an entertainment entity that you need to kind of have that you bolt on. And this was the purest exp- like, and I've always, as someone who's run a channel, like I've always rejected that, and I've always wanted to promote esports as a specific thing that has, you know, I suppose what I'm saying is this is the first time I've seen esports deployed like a with a heavy brush in terms of just the way it looks in completely superficially in a way that expressed the same attitude that you see expressed by people who just go like we'll just add some esports to this right i guess i'm just sort of seeing it as a live action version of literally all of the press releases i get that say we're holding a launch tournament for forty thousand dollars for our completely random game that you probably won't write about otherwise yeah sure and that stuff doesn't necessarily work or is appealing over here but it was interesting to watch it draw crowds to watch it function to watch it work to watch it like be successful as advertising so there were crowds yeah Okay. Like, yeah, like, you know, people were gathering to watch this. It was as, it was, you know, you're, you're, it was one of the marketing tools that worked alongside dance competitions and, you know, um, giveaways. Right. And that was interesting to see because I previously wouldn't have assumed, like, a lot of this trip was me thinking, seeing things that I previously assumed wouldn't work, work, like, and and understanding that things work differently in different markets Mm. and in different contexts. That there's a reason that those trends exist over here. Like finding the source of them. Like, oh, hang on. Yeah, this that's is why you're trying that. This is why you're working. trying this. Mm. Even if it's not working, this is why you're trying it. Because yeah, this yeah. is something that's been proven to work elsewhere. Well, I mean, also, it just doesn't work on us specifically. But, like, if there's $40,000 at stake for a thing, and if you're a person who has a bit of time on their hands and might legitimately get good at that game then you know you would want to know about it and you would want to get involved and you maybe would want four other friends to pick it up so that you had a chance at do you know what i mean like Mm. it's that's the sort of thing where maybe it's not actually aimed at us specifically we just get the press release because they have lists that Mm. they send these things to but also like i guess i'm struggling to pick up from what you're saying whether um these are games that do also have a niche following and that people would have come to China Joy to to actually see that specific thing or whether it was that they were just sort of responding to esports as a marketing tool. 
like um, you know whether that, you're just drifting through the hall and you're like that looks like a fun thing and you you go yeah, over that, and watch that, that enough is hard to pass yeah. because yeah. you know i'm not familiar with a lot of the games and so on but there was definitely a like it was interesting watching it appear interchangeable with other forms of marketing that that i guess is the the mm. point right um not to say that all esports is that but yeah maybe maybe second guess the things i would instinctively dismiss as bad ideas i've i've after all this time just remembered some news <laughs> uh do you want to get into it yeah what's yeah, the news let's get into the news good Wars 2 is getting its second expansion and its second kind of in, you know um, major input of new content a whole new zone it's getting mounts including a bunny rabbit that could jump really high and get you to new areas did it not have mounts it didn't have mounts no it's never had mounts huh. i know right but uh yeah, you, you've got a choice between a bunny rabbit, a manta ray, that <gasps> a giant manta ray that hovers over the ground and over water. And is that like those, hover tank, basically. those screamers, shriekers? Screamers. Screamers, a lot like the screamers that yeah. uh, Chris has beautifully painted. In Warhammer. In Warhammer. <laughs> Can you just, like, surf on them or do you sit on them? You sit on you sit on them and they surf, <laughs> as is the, they the, have a the surfboard. role of, like, <laughs> commandeered animals <laughs> they are your surfboard and uh yeah they can get you across like oceans to other bits um there's uh an elemental jackal of some <laughs> <laughs> uh that can blink through time and space what this like is escalated Corvo. really strictly uh, <laughs> and there's another one uh oh Velocir- velociraptor obviously there's a there's a raptor who can <laughs> jump uh great distances and and these are all used to navigate the new crystal desert i think it's called um oh, wow. And those movement abilities are used to kind of gate off areas. And as you level up, the way Guild Wars 2 works is um, these days with the expansions is that zones have their own like leveling curves, basically. So by being in a, a zone, you're acquiring new traversal techniques and new masteries that help you specifically with that zone. So with the desert, the form that's taking now is with mounts that you discover and upgrade. And all of the classes have new elite masteries, which basically change their roles completely and give you new skill trees and new things to do. And oh. it looks bloody great. That's a game that's just quite ticking on, still yeah. being brilliant. It's a, a, well, yeah, they've had their seasons of content, haven't they? They've had like their seasonal like stories that are, like it's almost like soap operas. Don't yeah, they? yeah. And those are continuing actually, and the latest phase uh, is due to kick off shortly after the expansion is released. And uh, they've used this really well to. Um, like sort of flesh out the villains of the world and deliver their stories and stuff. Oh. The new expansion is about a god of fire who's gone rogue, which is a pretty standard MMO <laughs> fair, to be <laughs> honest. Um, but I still think uh, it's really exciting and it's still worth mentioning this game because it's, um, it's an MMO where you don't play a, a subscription. You just yeah. buy the game once oh, and yeah. you get so much stuff now. Like there's so much stuff in that game. I was just going to say, when you mentioned about the cool mounts, um, it made me think of Path of Exile, which has its, um, is it Fall of Oriath or it's something of Oriath, uh, is the, uh, expansion of it coming out this year. That Oriath is always falling or rising. <laughs> yeah, some damn thing. Um, and I keep getting like messages about it. I keep getting like news feed updates about it. But like, I remember when I first looked into that game and it has the most New Zealand pets of all the pets. That's what, like, I was looking at the things <laughs> oh, yeah. and I was like, this this is such a New Zealand game. These people are from New Zealand. I bet they're from New Zealand. Um, and they have like things like a Weta and like a, a gore version of it, which is essentially like this giant um, like grasshopper like thing. And the gore version just trails blood everywhere, like oh, is that, hemorrhaging. Is that what Weta Digital are named after? I don't know. 
That's a New Zealand-based CGI so, company. Yes. <laughs> but like, it's just things like that. You're going, yep, <laughs> excellent work. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I watched, uh, I haven't played Guild Wars 2 in a long, long time, but I um, was interested by this announcement. And so I watched the, like someone just said, oh my God, this new expansion is great. And they linked to the live stream. And of course the live stream had just finished. And <laughs> that meant I couldn't watch that. And also the the actual trailer was not up yet. Uh, but then when I eventually did get a trailer I could watch, it was 22 minutes long. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was like, I don't well, I don't want to watch 22 minutes of this. I want kind of a summary. Uh, and so I started watching it from the start. That was a bad idea because the start is law. The first <laughs> 10 to 15 minutes, I would say, is law. Oh, and um, yes. <laughs> I didn't, I don't have any memories of what I thought of Guild Wars lore at the time, but this sure seemed boring. <laughs> it was very traditional. The concept art's amazing. Yeah, Always that's, that's what amazing. I love about Guild Wars. As soon as you show me like the new place, I'm like, oh my God, look at that. Um, and then actually I skipped ahead and I just ended up listening to, uh, watching all of the, uh, elite specializations, yeah. which I didn't even know what that is. I didn't They're play really far cool. enough to know what that, that means, but it basically it seemed like, uh, a new way of playing an existing class. Uh, so like now the um, elementalist can use swords in their main hand and something else <laughs> in their, in their secondary hand, but there's also a, a special set of skills that go along with this. Um, and they're all kind of desert themed. So the mesmer, uh, they're, I've already forgotten what it's called. Elite specialization for the <laughs> desert is Mirage. And so they're all about like, um, pretending to like, be a body of water yeah. slightly further away. <laughs> you think I'm a lake, but I'm not. <laughs> um, I'm just a bunch more sand. <laughs> uh, no, it's all about like them appearing not to be there when they really are and attacking from multiple angles and that Isn't stuff. Isn't that the opposite of a Mirage? Um, attacking from all angles. Well, yeah, like, yeah, you're right. God, water everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you're correct. Unless, unless the way they appear to not be there is they look like a lake. <laughs> yeah, no, this is all very confusing. Also, on that like trailer length thing, I resent any trailer that takes me longer to watch than the news takes me to write. I'm just sat there like, no, because I will write the summary of this so much quicker than this will take me to. Act they were very keen to tell me about. Balthazar and and oh. how mysterious it was that he wanted to <laughs> I don't know come back and he betrayed his own followers and all this other stuff. I was like, I really don't get. They they do have a new. Um, I I wasn't one hundred percent confident in my interpretation of their law because they were talking about a new god and everything on screen was a picture of a really cute dragon, like a baby <laughs> dragon, like um. If you've seen How to Train Your Dragon, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Oh, um, he's and it was best. adorable. <laughs> but I, I didn't know if that was the gods they were talking about or whether I'm just also seeing a baby dragon unrelatedly. <laughs> the gods in Guild Wars are dragons. So. Okay. Apparently they're different things now. Apparently the Let's not get let's not get into it. <laughs> no, Tom. Let's get into it. <laughs> God. Yeah, the dragons are these elemental forces that control the world and that the world is essentially theirs. But apparently there are human gods as well now. But I mean, I've not been following it closely. And Balthazar is one of those. Yeah, I heard the human gods from... went away and Balthazar is like the first to return or something. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that is a thing. He's kind of, re <laughs> he's reawoken and he's not happy. I, I regret knowing as much as I do. <laughs> you, but now you know everything. Pickleball is clearly sunk in, so the trailer has done its work. I tried to sneak back into Guild Wars a few months ago because um, when I first got it, it was actually a present from Chris, but like him and everybody else who I knew who had played it were doing that thing of like, 
having played it, got really good at it, basically mined it out and then wanting to like show you around but not really show you around because they want to show you all of the things that they're interested in and none of the things you're interested in. I'm right here. (laughs) (laughs) It was really sweet because you were so enthusiastic but it was very much, come over here, look at this thing and I'm like, I don't know what the button for moving is. (laughs) You know, so there was just a certain amount of we did a whistle stop tour and it was overwhelming and then I wanted to stop like when I went into World of Warcraft and a friend of mine scooped me up into his like motorcycle side cart, drove me to a place where I couldn't possibly survive, showed me everything from, I don't know, like the end game and then dropped me back off at like the start area <laughs> where I had to talk to fucking Hogger <laughs> about some nonsense. And I'm just like... Why can't you talk to the Hogger? <laughs> anyway. Does, does Guild Wars 2 do any kind of... um so my favorite innovation in, in MMO design ever was City of Heroes sidekicking system where if you're a high level character showing a new character around, you can just bump them up to your level. It kills us automatically. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like you are so you level can. to the zone you're in. Right. So you can be higher level than somebody, but not higher than the zone's cap. So mm-hmm. everything will always be a challenge and the loot scale. Oh, nice. so, yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah. it's great. It's still the reason it's the highest score I've ever given a game is Guild Wars 2. <laughs> But I think, because didn't they switch over to like maybe a new system? I don't know. Or something, because when I tried to log in, it wouldn't let me because it didn't recognize my account because they'd switched systems or something. So I had to email the support person and then they sent me a link that I could use to reset my account. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll use that when I've next got time to play the game. (laughs) And then when I'd next got time to play the game, it was like, your link has expired. You will need to do this all over again. (laughs) So I've got like a chat with their customer service department at some point in the future. <laughs> Actually, um, barely relatedly, uh, didn't the Secret World sort of relaunch recently did, as yeah. a free-to-play did, thing? Yeah. And uh, I was listening yeah. to Video Games Hot Dog podcast and um, Zach was saying that I've, I, I always heard a lot of good stuff about the Secret World, but with a lot of caveats. It was always like, oh, it's really good at this, but you probably shouldn't play it because of this. <laughs> and apparently... If you now, like the first zone is supposed to be really, really good. Just like a brilliant um, uh, MMO. Uh, I don't know. Whatever the fuck is good about MMOs. <laughs> it's got more of that. <laughs> um, and now you can play it for free and all the leveling is way faster and all the kind of problems with um, uh, that it had at launch are kind of fixed just through them kind of scrapping systems that didn't work or, you know, taking a sledgehammer to the whole thing and um, right. uh, being ruthless about it. Um and it's very, like, generous and, and quick to level up to. Mm. I didn't mm. mean to sound mean. It's just that you can't forget everything that you know about a game. That's true. When you play it with someone who doesn't know anything. And so there's always tension. That's fine. We should stop thinking of new newses. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise the podcast will not end. <laughs> yes. Should we do questions? Yeah. We've got a lot. We've got a lot of questions. We've got a lot of questions. Uh, It's episode 200. You know, owner of this MP3 file slash viewer of this YouTube video, (laughs) how long this episode is. We don't yet. (laughs) We've got a lot of questions. We have a lot of questions. And it's taken us so long to read through all the questions that we're a lot drunker now (laughs) than we were mere seconds ago from your, your perspective. This is a lot like... Oh, good uh, good high Lord. concept sci-fi film. <laughs> I feel like we should um, recap on the podcast's uh, cocktail, which is... Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. We didn't mention we are, we are drinking... Well, we were drinking the <laughs> crowbar and custard, which is um, 
Corsten's apple juice with rhubarb uh, mixed with uh, Captain Morgan's spiced rum. And the Captain Morgan's has a vanilla in it, which kind of gives it the custard element. And then mm. the rhubarb of the apple juice, obviously, uh, gives it the rhubarb element. And that makes it taste like a rhubarb and custard sweet, which is amazing. Mm. And we've drunk more or less all of that now. <laughs> yeah, that's... There's a liter of Captain Morgan's yeah. that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and, and then we also have ginger beer and other stuff for dark and stormies, which is uh, rum and ginger beer. And the dregs of another bottle of Captain Morgan's. We should really, yep. after 200 episodes, we should finally give Captain Morgan his due as the true <laughs> sixth, seventh, or eighth member of this podcast. We've had a few because we also, like, Maker's Mark was our thing for a long time. Mm, it was, true. yeah. And then also there was a whiskey that I had a um, complete obsession with, uh, which was, I have no idea how to pronounce it. Abelur or Abelur, oh, yeah, nice. yeah. Um and we drank that for a long time, and then I realised I love Jim Beam, and that's half the price. <laughs> I think that Captain Morgan's um, got like, as in the brand, has a bunch of people who dress up as Captain Morgan and attend promotional events. Because I'm fairly sure that a couple of my friends have met Captain Morgan, but it hasn't been the same Captain Morgan twice. <laughs> it's like the Dread Pirate It's Roberts. like Father Christmas. So, yeah. <laughs> We're to a different place. <laughs> yep. And also he like um, Andrew WK. You know? <laughs> I grew up believing that Andrew WK put money under my pillow every time I lost a tooth. <laughs> For partying. It's because yeah. you partied too hard. Party you know money. what to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, every time it, if you get drunk and vomit, you got to put your vomit under your pillow. And Andrew WK visits you <laughs> yeah. in the night, gives you money for more parties. That's so disgusting. <laughs> That's an amazingly coherent gag. <laughs> I love Andrew WK. Me too. We he's, all love Andrew he's WK. He's a, a genuinely great philosopher. Mm. <laughs> his so. um, his agony aunt column is amazing. Yeah, he's really smart. Man, yeah. we, we could have him on the podcast. If we could, we certainly should. We've got so many questions. <laughs> Shall we get on with it? Yeah. All right. I'm going to have to rotate slightly. Bear with me. I'm rotating. <laughs> Drew writes, has podding 200 episodes changed how you think of games? Are you enriched like a ripe mango or husks of your former journo selves? <laughs> Do tell, he bellows in all caps. Mango or husk. <laughs> Take our questionnaire now. Uh, I listened to episode one, like I say, or a bunch of episode one, um, quite recently, and I was surprised to find that it was quite lively, and also I was quite understandable. My voice was not completely indistinct, which is a problem I have sometimes in life. And uh, that was actually bad news, because it means I have not improved in any way since then, because I would say I'm no less clear than I was back then. Hmm. I feel like... No I more clear. I feel inspired a little bit by doing the podcast because I'm I'm amazed that I can I can still talk <laughs> for so long about one thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, over the course of four years, over five hundred hours or whatever yeah. it must be at this point, and more uh, broadly, like six years of our lives when yeah. it comes to and it kind of this uh, career. Even when sometimes like, I might feel burnt burnt out on games, like it's proof that I'm still deeply passionate and care and think about games all the time yeah so that I'm able to come actually, on this podcast every week yeah now that you mention it um i've you know this has come up a few times talking to other friends um who are in the kind of games industry talk about like you know have you played anything recently and they'll say no often <laughs> and they'll ask me and i'll say yeah i have because i do this podcast and there's kind of like it's not a strong pressure but there's a little bit of a, an impetus to play something new each week like mm. 
not just to play something, but if it's the same thing, you know, more than two weeks running, it kind of gets a bit boring. So you should probably play something new. And this podcast just gives me an incentive to do that. And I so I push myself to do it. And that's, you know, a positive thing anyway, both, you know, for life experience, it's just good in general to be experiencing different things. And also as a game designer, it's really useful to Hmm. not get stuck on the same games and play them endlessly and to have a more broad perspective. And yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, totally. Like, it's, um, I could only, I couldn't, I mean, just keep ripening. Just a mango. Just We're keep all mangoes. Just ripening forever. More swollen, really. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know about the, have I told the story about the Tommy Pips Atkins husk. mango? Oh, I've always been a husk. <laughs> <laughs> I professional husk. I sometimes buy mangoes just to sort of piggyback off their juiciness, but I mean... <laughs> Ultimately, Thanks. it's always it's just an amazing <laughs> mental image. Sliding, She's riding the mango into, into the sunset. <laughs> when, it was, when, it, the, the, when people say husk, I always think of the husks from Mass Effect. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I think would... of like, uh, is it like Farley's husk? Rusks. No, rusks. <laughs> is a rusk different to a husk? Yes. How it's different? Thing a baby. Well, a rusk is like a, a teething biscuit, basically. Right, but it's dry and hollow, isn't it? N- no. No, it's a biscuit. Is it not? It's just like, a biscuit? Well, I mean, the middle bit like disintegrates quite easily because like <laughs> saliva will just turn it to pap. <laughs> but... And that's the plot of Mass Effect 3. <laughs> but a husk is like Stop a hollow the husk, sort of... Um... <laughs> a hollow... Yeah, that's sovereigns you A hollow, say. like, desiccated I sort know of... you taste this. <laughs> thing. My army of rusks. <laughs> Yeah, I, until today I didn't know the difference between a rusk and a husk. <laughs> now you do. <laughs> so Farley's a... marketing has really not not paid off. No, for you. they haven't. They, they've done a poor it's just job. Another enriching but... thing this podcast is giving me. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I think something that is like it, it does doing them too often or doing podcasts too often does deplete your sort of stock of things to say so like you were saying about you know wanting to play new things and to sort of keep that that flow of new material like needing to do the rps podcast on top of this has kind of been an interesting balancing act in terms of needing to keep some opinions back or like (laughs) needing to have played double the volume of games in a very specific way like it's it is an interesting thing and also like there's an interesting balancing act in terms of the amount of yourself that you bring to a thing like obviously you know you can only really talk as yourself but there's a certain amount of like I think podcasts like there's a need to be approachable and a need to be sort of you and it sort of is offset against also needing your own personal life that isn't part of a public facing thing and it's a similar balancing act that you have to to play out on twitter or on youtube or on in work you know in in writing about things like how personal you actually make it and which anecdotes you tell and which you don't so there's some elements of games that are personal that never make it onto the podcast or that you know just sort of have to be 
carefully curated in interesting ways but it's hard to like explain those rather in in specific terms because obviously that <laughs> negates the the balancing act that you've performed because you'd have to betray those confidences or whatever but so that's a kind of thing that goes on behind the scenes that I think I've become so aware of in years of doing this not on Crate and Crowbar but on other podcasts as well like I used to do not a game and things and so mm. yeah yeah I think I find it generally like particularly as, as other other hobbies have entered my life and kind of sort of take some of the time away doing this every week has been a reliable reminder of why I enjoy and I'm interested in and want to talk about video mm. games and also the getting pissed with your friends is fun <laughs> <laughs> that's also good our next question comes from Zed, who writes, Reading comments for Pyre and recalling Frozen Cortex's failure, do you think making a sports game is a mistake if you aren't, for example, EA Sports? Um, and I wanted to tie this to another question, which comes from David, who writes, A couple of things you mentioned about Pyre. The stats for each character are displayed on their character page shown before a match and when clicking on the yellow window in your wagon. Hovering over a stat explains what it does and exactly what that means. Quickness in something per second and hope in seconds before respawn. I think Pyre is remarkable in how much information they provide to the player. Tom mentioned the same command used for attack and ball throw, but as I've learned from later game AI, throwing the ball... At another player, so they catch it, removes their aura, so you can banish them, exclamation mark, brackets. I've yet to do this on purpose. <laughs> I think the slow difficulty ramp-up is the game's general tutorial. The Beyonder Trials are advanced tutorials for specific character playstyles, so you can learn the rights at the same rate as the characters, but it seems this diegetic tutorial system has lost many people in the game. My question, how do you think the game, a game can broadly apply unique mechanics, hover text and made-up sports ball, without losing... Players who are expecting more conventional tutorials or gameplay. Too many blobs of text tutorials make everything boring. Thanks for reading, David. For context, I've played eight hours and read every sparkling hover text I could find. I like the game a lot, but dislike the announcer. Yeah, I think the, the hover text thing was the reason that you know, Tom Tom S. and I had played similar amounts of, of Pyre. And I did know what all the stats meant, and he didn't. And it was because... When I was wondering what the stats meant, it happened to be on the screen where if you hover over them, it will tell you. Mm. And I think when Thomas was looking at what the stats meant, it was on a screen where that doesn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> it's really variable. So, and what I found is that the point at which you're actually making a decision about the stat, that is not hyperlink text. Right. Like that's not a pop-up text. If it's mentioned in conversation and it's in like a text box, um, quite right, you can mouse over it and get that information. But at the point where you're looking at an item and what, uh, and the tooltip for the item says plus X, you know, this, uh, this yeah. stat, that's not a hyperlink. And that, that's, that's the precise moment where you need that information. And that's where you're actually going to learn what these things do. There's a very strange thing in their economy as well, where, um, you have these talismans and a talisman, you can only each player can only have one talisman you know each person in in your team can only have one talisman and the talismans will be things like you know when you score a goal it will do more damage to the enemy pyre or um this will make you move faster and then you get this dust that can increase the power of those talismans and because you can only have one it's really just like which type of thing do you want and once you've decided that how good do you want it to be mm. obviously you want it to be as good as you possibly can 
and the dust improves that for any type of talisman doesn't matter what it is so you always um, buy that right <laughs> yeah and the dust is crazy cheap i have like 96 hmm. currency and the most expensive thing i can buy is like 120 currency or something and it that's just a thing that would um i don't know increase some stat i don't care about and then the dust will cost me like four currency and that will increase the power of my thing that increases the damage I do to the enemy pile, which mm. is a huge deal. That's like how soon I win the match. Yeah. The, um, the other I example, don't know why that's balanced that way. The other example is um, there's a talisman that you can install, which increases the health of your own pyre just for that character being on the field. Right. So you give it to a character and it just gives plus 20 to your pyre. So it's like 100. Every time they, uh, the enemy scores a dunk, it reduces your pyre by the amount of damage that character can do but mm. if you just keep pouring dust into this you know uh this this pyre buffing uh, talisman then it removes all the questions it removes your your need for other talismans because it's just like a default you just right your 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 pyre is twice as tough if you put loads and loads of uh dust into this one thing yeah there's loads of kind of weird item imbalance and so, I, i'm really not sold on the whole the combat system they do have an interesting system for uh, what seems like their intention is to mix up how you're going to play and so for story reasons at various encounters they will just uh, tell you like this person is just not going to play this right they just refuse to mm. for this reason for some plot reason they, they want to make way for this other character or they don't like this other character or whatever um, and that's a good idea like the idea of mixing up your playstyle is generally good they tried to do this in Transistor in a way I really didn't like which is every time you died whatever you used most when you died was locked off from you and you couldn't use it again. Right. Their idea was if you are, if you kind of dominant strategy, then you should not be able to use that strategy again. But because it only happened when you die, it was like, this is a strategy that wasn't working. I was already, that was my best thing. Hmm. And you took it away from me. Now I'm going to fail even more. And yeah, I'll just, yeah. and then it'll take even more things away from me. And it was a terrible downward spiral. And so this, in this game, they are, um, there's two different things. One is uh, every now and then for story reasons, a character will opt out of the right. They will refuse to participate even if you want them to. And then also when you score with a character, if you actually throw them into the pyre, they uh, need to respawn for a while so you can't use them immediately. Neither of those things totally work for me because the talismans feel like almost as important as the other stuff. And if someone refuses to play, you can still take a talisman and put it on another character. Yeah. So it's still like, well, okay, Rukio doesn't want to play, and he's... Is it Ruki? Ruki. Ruki. Yeah. Ruki doesn't want to play. He's our fastest character. But I have another character who's like, you know, 90% as fast as him. So I'll give them the same like talisman. Little, little worm dude who's like really fast. Yeah. And then it's pretty similar, mm. and it doesn't affect things that much. And then also, a thing I think I didn't appreciate with Pyre, because I haven't got far enough with it, um, is there... The outcome of the game, winning is not necessarily the best thing. There are there, like there are situations. It depends how much you care about the characters versus how much you care about winning the game. Mm. But um, the game is intentionally about: uh, Do you really want to beat this character? Do you really want them to be banished and you not to be banished? As far as I played, that was never came up. It was always just we're just playing some game for points, and I don't know what the yeah, points sure. mean, but it's just a random thing. Apparently, eventually, it gets to the point where you know, someone in this game might get to leave this whole realm and ascend or whatever, and you get to uh, decide that through who wins, and also if you do win, then, you know, you get to pick who who gets to go. Um, I didn't get that far, but 
yeah, it, it's um, that's interesting. I like I like the idea of divorcing gameplay success from narrative. I don't know narrative success. I guess mm. you know the, the idea that like you've done well. Do you want this character to leave, or do you want them to stick around? And from their story, they want to leave. Do you fulfill that desire, or do you keep them around because you like them, or do you keep them around because you know you failed at the game? Yeah, I just um, I've just hit that first decision point actually, and that's where the game kind of resets and it gives you the loop that you're going to have to do like over and over again to actually right. basically win. Um, and that is a really interesting decision. And it's, I think we should like kind of come back to Pyre like in a future pod when we've both mm. like gone through it a little bit more because that those decisions are super interesting actually. And um, I just got rid of the most boring person <laughs> like as a character. I just so it's weird. I, I'd love to know what you what you choose. Yeah. You so for me, there's there's a character who's uh, the night guy. His mechanic is really interesting, but I hate him narratively. <laughs> uh, he's a comedy character. He's just yeah, pure, yeah. like, ah, oh, look at me. I'm funny. I'm doing this funny thing, and I don't find it funny. And so I'm just like, fuck off, mate. <laughs> but then when I play games, then it's like he has a different mechanic. Like the way he works is fundamentally different to other characters. Yeah. And so like mechanically, I want to play as him. He's really good uh, in the fights as well. Yeah. He's super fast. He's really good. Yeah. Hmm. I th- I think um to go back to the first question about whether you have to be like EA to make a good sports hmm. game. That was the mm-hmm. question. No, right? that was the question. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> sorry. I remember now. <laughs> I think we forgot that. Um, I would say that you don't because i mean obviously there's loads of like sports games that are made by people who aren't ea which are fun or good or you know that do interesting things and there's loads of indie projects on um that you can play at things like the wild rumpus or you know that have a lot of sports elements and have an understanding of competitive stuff and i think there's a couple of like michael bro things that like experiment with the idea of like lane pushing and competitive (laughs) like ball throwing and passing and things in really interesting ways um but i would say that like um something which came up recently was the behold the kickmen game Mm um and it's essentially a game that kind of i think developed from a sort of jokey snarky kind of um like uh, position on football and that it's you know incomprehensible and there's a lot of like um you know that's where a lot of its humor comes from but um something that came up a lot in the reviews and in chat from chats that I've had with people who have played it I haven't um is about how in sort of not really understanding football and being content to sort of make fun of it and that be the the level at which the game is operating it also then misses out on elements like particular balance problems or you know problems with the ai which some of the the um things like the offside rule it 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 can be it's a thing to ridicule because it's not a thing that you can easily sum up in a sentence and you know it it is genuinely easier to show people how it works using condiments on a table and that has become a kind of running joke but like it also does perform a function in the game and I think things like that get overlooked um, and you end up in this strange situation where you've got this sort of amorphous mess of 
play that's happening that you can't guide into a fun experience um, without an understanding of how particular rules are implemented or how they work. And so obviously at companies like EA, they've got studios who've been looking into that for years and have an understanding of balance and have budgets and have research and have, you know, like that history of iteration and the relationships with the teams and things so they can implement very specific commercial sides. But there's also just a sense of like, I think you can be any size studio and make a sports type game work, but you have to, it's, it goes back to the core ideas of like balancing things. And is it fun to play? And if it is, then why is it? And if it isn't, then why is it, isn't it? If you see what I mean, because, you know, otherwise you're coasting on, um, on the strength of the premise. And that is not a a healthy thing for a game specifically to do. Mm. Um, And on the other thing, I would just say that, like, um, I got a bit lost in the question, but I think it was essentially um, which games do, like, hover over tooltips as explanations well. And even though I don't like the genre, but, like, those complicated turn-based strategy type things where you've got a lot of resources that you need to manage, even though I don't like them and even though I find the resource management stressful and I get lost really easily, the majority of them do have the ability to hover over and actually tell you what the resource is. Hmm. So that is something that is good. Is that even the question? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. I'd say like there's, there's a lot of questions. Okay. Yeah, so two different people's questions. <laughs> I was and like each desperately trying to like hang on ones. to them. I was like, <laughs> this is collectively question two <laughs> of about ten. I would say that like for build the kick men, like if your understanding of the sport is so poor, then the satire of that is going to be stupid, and that's what's happened. To Unless it's about not understanding the sport, which could work. Like you can. Mm, what? Why make that thing? <laughs> I feel like there's there's comedy in a sort of self-deprecating attempt to read yeah, football. I, I'm a buffoon. Sports, yeah. This is a complicated thing. Here's why I think it works. There's a circular pitch. The the goalkeeper is called the goalkeeper, and uh, the misinterpretations are I I think potentially funny, but if it strays into the territory of like I know what you think it is as a football fan, mm. and I'm telling you it's like this then that becomes annoying and offensive. I think it's, like, it's just, it's it's such a flimsy thing, if you see what I mean. Like, it's a, it's, there's, you could see the potential for humour in that if it's done right, but you can also see how it could just be a really flimsy kind of, you know, here's a broad strokes, like, jab at this thing, and I haven't, like, you know, and and I think anything is ripe for being sort of poked fun at. That's, you know, like, that doesn't bother me at all. But I think if it's, from what I've seen and heard, like I say, admittedly, I haven't played the game, so I don't want to, like, make this a definitive judgment, but nothing that anyone who has played has told me has made me think that it's... Um, it's come up with anything, um, come up with any new twists on jokes that I've heard a hundred times before. Yeah. If the, if the question is like, oh, is, is just making a sports game kind of doomed, you know, unless it's a massively established thing, 
I feel like Rocket League is a pretty good counterexample to that. Yeah, that's mm. just a really good point. Very it's good a point. totally made up sport and it's just great. Yeah, <laughs> like really everyone loves it. Fun. It just really works. But they designed that game to be fun instead of that, to attack something <laughs> that millions of people like. And it, it was the second try, right? They, they made a first game that yeah. was called like Super Powered Rocket Cars. <laughs> Oh, push yeah. balls or something like <laughs> really what it's called it yeah a really yeah. elaborate name and yeah they had a go at it and it, I, I super mega don't rocket jigger yeah I haven't heard anything about that game that, that suggests the rules were wrong or it was failing because of any mechanical reason but for whatever reason that their second attempt at it which was uh, Rocket League um, really clicked with people <laughs> and uh it's very simple. It's it's essentially football, but you're a car. <laughs> and uh, the physics of it obviously have to be just right. And there's also, you can thrust. And because you can thrust, technically, that means you can kind of fly. But how much and to what extent you can fly is very much down to player skill. And um, it's it's very much a game where like the, the basic way of playing it is available to everybody. And the... the the more advanced way of playing it is only available to people who really understand the mechanics. The best execution of the Behold the Kickman joke is Blurn's Ball from Futurama. <laughs> oh, yeah. God, yeah. I Like, that is... I've referenced that even in Heat <laughs> Um I mentioned it um, the other day. Today, actually, I think. Was it? Blurn's Lock about... is just a very funny phrase. <laughs> that whole sequence is amazing. Like, there's a 30-second clip of Futurama that's just beautiful. Chris, what there's, like, it starts with um, Fry being indignant that in the future they've made oh, yeah. any changes to baseball at all. Yeah. Like, how could you change baseball? It was like perfect. I was like, oh, so you find baseball interesting, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like, multi-ball, oh, lands yeah, locked. <laughs> so like, we have a device. Like, oh, ball in uh, Overwatch. I was thinking about the summer games coming up again. And I was just like, oh, it's uh, Blunt's ball. <laughs> So uh, we were doing a, we have an elaborate system for unique items and heat signature that we want to give to people in, in an interesting way. Um, and uh, our programmer, John Winder, uh, was, I gave him the task of, of making that system work, but I didn't actually tell him what the unique item should be. So he had to just make up one himself. <laughs> and he made a grenade launcher that basically just fires like three grenades at once. And... Uh, I thought it was great. I really, uh, I really got a unique item, but the, the title was, the name of it was just multi grenade launcher. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, it should be called the multi ball <laughs> <laughs> because of that future armor scene. <laughs> just like multi ball. I thought, well, multi ball was also chaotic. So it should be at least five grenades, not three grenades. <laughs> so now we have a device called the multi ball that just fires five grenades. There's not really any practical reason why you'd want to fire five grenades rather than one, but it's very funny. <laughs> and I, I kind of want it to like, if those grenades kill more than five people, it should just pop up a message that says Blurn's locked. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, Chloe writes, Dear Loot Crate and Plus Three Crowbar, I'm quite the fan of short roguelikes and roguelites such as Spelunky, Crypt of the Necrodancer and Cave Blazers in which the player starts with nothing and over the course of a half hour gains items which progressively make the run more interesting and unique. A lot of games in this genre have quick restart, have a quick restart key which will instantly reset the game run when you press it. 
in some games, if I don't feel like the run is going well enough after the second floor, I'll just restart because it's faster and lose what possibly could have been a great run if I'd stuck with it. Other games are even worse. In Crypto the Necrodancer, I often find myself repeatedly resting, pressing quick restart until I find a run where the hidden shop spawns in view of the starting room because having fast access to it makes more interesting. I feel this severe impatience with games like this is causing me to lose out on otherwise good runs, but I'm reluctant to stop because with each run lasting around 30 minutes, it's easy to come out of a run, come out of an anticlimactic run feeling as though it was a waste of time. Are there any games that you find yourself restarting a lot because it's just not going well enough? Or alternatively, are there any features in games you abuse at potentially the detriment of your enjoyment? As always, keep up the good pod and Chloe. Yeah, I used to have this with Splunky actually. And like, as much as I love that game mode, if level one does not go well, I would usually just restart it. <laughs> it would just be like, uh, particularly because like the most common way to fuck up was dart traps and dart traps did two damage. You have four health. Most things do one damage. Dart traps do two damage and they're the hardest thing to see. So the most common cause of, of failure was something you didn't see happened and then you lost half your health and if that happened on level one there's just no reason to carry on it was just like ah, i should just start again because level one is different every time it's going to be it's not going to be boring to repeat that stuff it's going to be playing new content essentially um and carrying on from here is just carrying on from a position where i'm just half as likely to succeed so it's just kind of uh terrible and i that's why i, I kept um, I was always a, a big campaigner for dart traps to only do one damage because anything that made me restart the game, I always thought this is not how it should work. A roguelike should be a game where, you know, um, you play it through, like you start, maybe bad things happen, but you're always so invested in your playthrough that that, that outweighs any setbacks. And Splunky was a game where the setbacks could sometimes be so big that it was just, well, on level one, that outweighs my investment in this playthrough and I just want to restart. But presumably and... that doesn't apply when it was the, um, you know, you'd, you'd push through when it was the daily challenge. That would be Yeah, the daily challenge was a good antidote to that because you had to carry on because mm. it was going to be compared to your friends and all this stuff. Um, that It was good. It didn't... Like, Splunky was incredibly popular amongst game developers and games journalists, <laughs> and I think less popular amongst the general populace. And so for me and my friends, it was good for a long time, and we had a, a nice honeymoon period where that, that worked. Um, for other games, I think it's these days it's incredibly hard to have a community big enough and, and interconnected enough that daily challenge really makes sense. Uh, and so the alternative is, like, maybe a weekly challenge, there is actually the Crate and Crowbar uh, roguelike community has a monthly challenge for Splunky. So, like, the, I think it's the first daily challenge of the month. Uh, they all do it and they all compare scores because it's just unrealistic to expect everybody to play it 30 times a month. Um, and Michael Bro's game, Imbroglio, uh, has an Izu challenge, <laughs> which is. I think it's every four days or five days or something. He decided that daily challenge was too frequent and weekly challenge was too seldom. And so he looked for any culture that had any kind of concept of a week that was less than seven days. And I don't remember what culture it is. I think it might be a Central American one. 
has a concept of izu, which is, I think, four days. <laughs> and so he has a new day challenge, a new challenge every four days. That's cool. Um, I think the only time it's happened for me is um, Yoshi Touch and Go on the DS. And because hmm. I got really good at the first bit, because what you're doing is baby mario falls out of the sky with like a little you know uh, you can guide him using clouds so (laughs) he picks up um he picks up coins from the sky as he comes down and when he lands a yoshi egg hatches and that combo then proceeds into the level to do the platformy type stuff um so it was essentially just a way of determining the um the the awesomeness of your yoshi as you started but because i that was a game that really got its claws into me i would i i would actually just ditch any run where i got less than the best yoshi at the start <laughs> um because it just felt like well i mean given that i know i can do this why wouldn't i and also yeah. because that part of the game was genuinely fun for me so i didn't mind repeating it over hmm. and over um i think the best yoshi was the black yoshi the black spotted yoshi <laughs> and so i would sort of um just yeah keep playing until i got that and then like take on the rest of the level challenge yeah it's tricky because if you make a roguelike where when you start it's always the same and then the difference comes like an hour in or whatever um that becomes a lot less appealing for people who are restarting a lot because their restarting is going to be exactly the same Mm. for a, a a big chunk of their time and so yeah there's a big tension between you know the people who want each playthrough to be different would like your the difference to come as early as possible, and the people who don't want you to to cheese it and restart for the sake of getting new stuff want that difference to come later, so that you can't do that. So that when you restart artificially to create new choices, you don't get to see what the unique, interesting thing you're going to get is. You have to play for a little while. Our next question comes from Mitchell, who writes, "Dear Crater, oh, hang on." Dear Cater and Crab Row. What? Does it make sense to anybody? Not to me. Well, I mean, it's Crate and Crowbar, but I mean, Crab well, Row, yes, I, I mean, Crowbar. Yeah, yes. Modified yes. strangely. But I mean, do the, the, aren't most of the things just playing with the words of the podcast? Let's not get hung up on this <laughs> here all night. While recently replaying some of Mirror's Edge Catalyst, I was reminded of how much I enjoy being in that city. It's a shame that the game's world is so much better than the story or combat. In fact, I realised that I would be perfectly willing to play any game at all in that setting, even if it had no parkour or anything else that you would associate with Mirror's Edge. What were some unlikely combinations of setting and genre that you would potentially be quite that could you think would be potentially quite good? A prison architect style management sim where you manage Aperture Sciences labs. Team Fortress 2, a telltale adventure. A city builder where the city is cloud bank from Transistor? Question mark. Thanks for reading, everybody. Mitchell, who's Oxbait on Discord. Hmm. I'd play a modern iteration of Oni in the oh, Mirror's yeah. Edge city. That was great. Oni was great. Yeah. That's why Bungie, right? Yep. Yep. And it had, like, its controls are very, very strange now, but the the vision and the idea of it was fucking cool. And, it, like, 
the vision for the city and the environments weren't too far off what Mirror's Edge Catalyst is. I yeah. Think. It was very much a game about like unlocking new cool moves to do against people, right? Yeah. Because you're a, sort of like a ninja lady who is beating up people with guns and you had a whole range of moves. And as you progress through the game, you unlock new ones and you got better and better at it and you got more and more finesse. And I remember it being like one of the first games where... Uh, I loved it, and then I thought, yeah, I want to play this again, and then I started playing it again, and I was like, none of these moves work anymore. Like, it wasn't just you discovered new moves, it was like, those moves were actually unlocked, so mm. even knowing how to do them from the start of the game did not help you. They mm. weren't all unlocked yet, so they right, didn't work. Gotcha. So it was like, from the start, you just have basic punches and kicks, and it was just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> all my muscle memory is geared towards playing a high-level character this, and now I can't anymore. The fancy of the, that game was awesome, though, and to attempt that at the time, like, the, the idea that you're this Matrix-style like martial arts expert taking on small groups of goons yeah. is, um, yeah, still Yeah, it was really, really cool. cool. I also I... really like, she changed her outfit throughout the whole game, mm. and that was, like, strangely... Uh, a compelling form of progress it was like wow she's wearing a new costume now something actually happened the old Tomb Raider games did that really well as well like yeah. Lara would travel the globe and then appear in a completely different set what of genre would you adapt only into I ask because that was literally the question hmm. uh, reasonable <laughs> <laughs> Shadow Tactics the the samurai strategy stealth game which I haven't played yet but I plan to hmm. I thought it was it genre and location or something. Or no, was it, it was it was world from one game, genre from a different game. So, I would be a lot more interested in Don't Nod's vampire game if it was Vampire Viva Pinata, <laughs> and not what they're doing, which just looks really, really six out of ten boring. <laughs> like, you know, sure, fine, whatever. But like, imagine, like. Miserable, rainy, Victorian Viva Piñata with vampires. I can't imagine that, really. You're saying that you're a vampire and the kind of the garden you're creating are actually just the proles that you feed on and you're kind of growing them in different districts and then feeding on them. Well, like, or because, you know, you're sort of trying to cultivate, like, maybe a nest of vampires in this in this imaginary game or, like, you're sort of luring in different types of vampires to your cemetery It's like and a dungeon things. keeper. Like, yeah. yeah, just kind of, like, attracting them and then, like, you know, breeding them or, you know, hitting them until they explode in blood. Like splatters everywhere, mm. but you know, do you not think that 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 would be quite good? I'd play that. I would be the only one, but I would play that. <laughs> and I would talk about it often on the podcast. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. I would enjoy that. <laughs> so our next question comes from John, who writes quite a long email. Don't have time to read all of because. It's long. But um, he writes about the kind of convergence of pen and paper and computer game RPG design. And goes on to say, The continuing discussion made me think about the difference between conventional and computer RPGs. I reflected on a hopeful dream of mine, a game that is the thief of social interaction games. I can't say social games or it calls to mind Farmville. What I mean is a game that revolutionizes social interaction gameplay in an open world in a way that Thief did for stealth gameplay in a somewhat open world. I imagine this as hustling for the thieves or the mythic dawn in Oblivion's Imperial City or being one of the job givers in GTA. This is still not a question. Sorry. 
Uh, typically, I get these kind of game play urges out in my pen and paper games. I'm doing what amounts to the Mythic Dawn game now using the Burning Wheel, but I was wondering, do you think the video games can deliver on my dream of a compelling social interaction-based open-world RPG, or have I just missed them all? Um, so, all I was going to say in response to this is that this is kind of what a lot of the more open MMOs have done for a long time. Like, um, Eve is famous for providing roles for players that are not as, like, active doers or anything, but it's the kind of, literally the GTA mission giver, the person who sits at the center of the, you know, conspiratorial or criminal or corporate spider web and hands out objectives. And that's what's cool about them. It's like, as soon as the game mechanics can be so kind of dispersed that one person can just have the role of coordinator, then that's super exciting, right? Like, that's that's when you get into that kind of territory. I don't think it will ever happen in a single-player game by necessity because if it's deterministic, then it's a management game and it's not really social at all. Um, if you want to have a game about actually like manipulating social and political patterns to achieve an end, then it has to be multiplayer because you would have hit that already with pen and paper. Um, and if it has to be multiplayer, then MMO is the obvious place to go looking for it. And I think it does exist. Like It's something that already exists in Hackmud to talk about my own game for a bit like and it's something that will become more important as time goes on as well like if you like the idea of being the person who just gives out and receives information at the center of a web then that's the kind of thing we want to encourage so it's a yeah it's, it's a legit thing but i think the wrong place to look for it is in single player rpgs Hmm. I think the right place to look for it is in MMOs. Have there always been two bottles of rhubarb juice? Yes. Interesting. One no. was in the fridge for a while, and then I brought oh, it up in the break. I thought maybe we had a mimic. Because <laughs> I, I literally sat up, and then there were two bottles, and I was like, okay. That does explain why you hit the second bottle with a wrench. <laughs> For a lot of the first half of that podcast. I'll get the post-it notes. <laughs> it was just one of those really weird real-world video game moments where, because we'd been talking about Prey for so long, I was like, I don't want to alarm anybody. <laughs> <laughs> we do surprisingly have two bottles of rum now. Oh, God. One's a little bit smaller than the other one, thank God. <laughs> it's an inadequate mimic. A young mimic. <laughs> Oh, Babby. <laughs> Little teenage mimic. Our next question comes from Tom. A mimic of any of the Toms in this room, <laughs> perhaps. Who writes, Warm greetings to the great crate and the subpar crowbar. First hmm. of all, happy 200th episode, unless you're not reading this on the 200th episode, in which case replace 200th with the appropriate episode number or don't bring attention to it at all, as celebrating episode 206 would be rather odd. Too late. I you didn't bring it to until two oh six. I really should have read this out in episode two oh six. Too late. Your discussion a number of pods ago regarding playing games against the devil got me thinking about the kinds of games the devil would make you play if you were trapped in eternal damnation. You know, normal stuff. One of my biggest personal gripes with games is terrible control schemes, so my question is this. If you were forced to play video games in hell for eternity, 
Which of these would you rather suffer through? This is a really good question, incidentally. One, overly responsive controls. Your mouse always swings slightly further than you want it to, and button presses register twice when you're sure you press it once. <laughs> Two. That's awful. Unresponsive controls. Every input you make has a slight delay, which changes in length frequently enough that you can't learn to predict it. Yours lovingly, a random dude who totally isn't the devil. Thomas. <laughs> this, this is a fucking part. great question. I want. So. I want to go for the over-responsive controls for mouse sensitivity. Yeah, it feels like you could eventually get used to that. For button presses counting twice, obviously you couldn't really entirely get used to that. Yes, you can. Well, okay. <laughs> I say that because it turns out there's a bug with Logitech mice on Windows 10 mm. where they do often click twice all the time. And me and Pip were both using Logitech mice until I gave Pip my SteelSeries mouse and sacrificed myself to the god of double tech forever. <laughs> um, which is possibly the most heroic thing I will ever do. <laughs> Just in case anyone misses. <laughs> um, Sorry. So I've been dealing with double clicking all the time by accident. Huh for a while now and so i feel like i could deal with the over responsive side of this better god i learned heroically to reprogram a muscle memory for uh zelda breath of the wild such that the button i usually think of as cancelling is now confirm and the button <laughs> i usually think of as confirming is now cancelling and i did it eventually you know like 90 percent of my time with zelda i would end up confirming things I meant to cancel and cancelling things I meant to confirm. Uh which is it's an error that double compounds itself, right? If you you do something and then it tells you, Oh, you wanna do this? And you're like, what? No, I wanna cancel that. So you press what you think is a cancel button, which is actually the confirm button. So now you've <laughs> both done this thing and confirmed it. Um which is terrible. I finally got around that and learnt how to use those buttons. And now every time I play anything with an Xbox controller I do the exact opposite thing <laughs> and I confirm things I meant to cancel and cancel things I meant to confirm. So that is my personal hell. Um, I don't know if that's an answer to the question. <laughs> what you're saying not. is you're living it every day. Yeah, I live in hell every day. <laughs> nothing you can do to me that's worse than my current life. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast got real. Um, oh, I think I could learn to live with oversensitive mouse as opposed to undersensitive especially particularly the point where um the questioner describes the undersensitivity changing value yeah that's that the thing you like can't hell. compensate with like you could it's always going to be a curse where if it's like consistently oversensitive i would eventually get the muscle memory to do it yeah it's interesting like having it like a one second lag or something we used to play action quake 2 in a clan uh, back in the day before like broadband internet so we all had dial-up modems and the speed of those was variable by a huge extent like 56k was a huge deal mm. and other people would be on 14k so your your lag time would be dramatically different and one of the best players in our clan um uh was a guy who was on the worst ping he had like a sort of 400 or 500 millisecond ping and he was just really good at knowing what we were going to do in 500 milliseconds. <laughs> and so you'd be chasing him and you'd round the corner thinking, ah, I've got the M4, I'm going to destroy him because my aim is going to be way better and I'm going to be able to shoot him. And then 
the second you round the corner, a grenade goes off and he threw it like three seconds ago because he knew you were going to go there in three seconds time. He headshotted like, you Fuck six him. months ago. <laughs> See, i Mandius of headshots. His username was Pigfetus. <laughs> so Charming. <laughs> Fantastic question. And by the way, that uh, the previous question where the question was actually what final game would you play versus death? Yeah. Um, was also one of my favourite questions on the Great Grove Bar ever. Mm. Yeah, indeed. I Good think one. it's probably the, the question of format to go for, to be honest. Like, what metaphysical terror would you offset? <laughs> <laughs> um, does it? Pip? Um, I think it is skewed. Like, it, it's, it oh. is the element of unpredictability that makes one option so much more unpalatable than the other. Like, I think it would probably be a fairer phrasing if it was like, would you rather have unpredictable oversensitivity or unpredictable undersensitivity? Mm. Um, but I'm not answering because the devil will then know. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously I'm not planning on going to hell, but no one does, right? So, <laughs> I mean... That's true. Like, I Yeah. Every good intention takes me closer, which is why I've got no good intentions on purpose. <laughs> Bad intentions all the way. The road to hell is paved with nothing, because Pip did not start it. <laughs> it's not a very well-paved road. More of a dirt track. Yeah, it's hard to call it a road, really. <laughs> yeah, We're exactly. struggling with semantics here. <laughs> I took the it's road less travelled by making all of my intentions shitty. <laughs> <laughs> so long, suckers. <laughs> Not going very quickly because this road isn't very well surfaced. Enjoy your terrible control schemes in hell. <laughs> the road to Shitsville is paid with shitty roads. <laughs> what are we talking about? Perhaps Aiden has the answer. He writes, How much Patreon money would it take to make Tom Francis play through Dark Souls? At least as far as Anna Londo. I understand there are lots of things preventing someone from playing it from the learning period but i would love to hear his thoughts on it thanks aiden i did start playing dark souls a few times and the sort of tutorial features you sort of confronting some kind of boss in a sense that you're not supposed to defeat them just yet and then you sort of you run away and i think you come back and then you are supposed to defeat them you fall on it i think i did both those things i think i completed that tutorial but i did not click with the game at all and i didn't get anything from it i felt like i just didn't enjoy combat at all i really did not want any more further combat to take place ever again <laughs> and uh from what i gather i think combat does take place <laughs> on a repeated basis somewhat the rest yeah, of that game. a little bit um you can join me in the dork souls am i right <laughs> yeah that it wasn't for me how much patron money would it take you would have to if you could provide me the sufficient amount of patreon money that it didn't i didn't need to release my next game like if it was equivalent to the best possible scenario of what my next game could make then i would happily not release my next game and instead play dark souls right <laughs> is that true though no. really yeah would you not prefer that of money yeah no, <laughs> don't don't worry Tom francis oh, he has a price. i'm not fussy about how i make the money i just <laughs> Inserting your own condition here that if someone paid you that money and you didn't release your own game that you have been working on for three <laughs> years, then you will play Dark Souls. I'm saying right now, <laughs> the amount of money you'd have to pay me would have to be... 
I had a physics teacher in high school. <laughs> All right. If I may digress. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, who uh, people would ask him, like, you know, can't you just give me an A on this exam? Like, uh, what would I have to pay you to give me an A? And he would say, well, I used to work for the patent office <laughs> and I was fairly well paid there, but I found it very boring. So I quit that job and I became a physics teacher. Uh, so if you can pay me more than what I was earning at the patent office for the rest of my life, <laughs> then I will gladly give you an A on your exam. <laughs> so he's like, my fee for bribery is all of the money I could possibly earn by being an honest citizen in the yeah. most profitable job I could do being an honest citizen. And if you pay me more than that, absolutely, I'll breach all my morals. Yeah, but I don't it. think that that's true either. <laughs> I reckon, like, they wouldn't, right? I think he might have. <laughs> he was a pretty logical guy. Anyway, uh, yeah, right now, I'm not going to do that because I want to finish my game. If you ask me after I finish my game, my conditions might relax. <laughs> Before I finish my game, you would have to pay me all of the money I might possibly earn from finishing my game in order to delay me from finishing my game. Mm. How much can I get paid for playing Dark Souls? <laughs> <laughs> it's a rare offer, this. <laughs> you already did. No, but I only went up to the Capra Demon and then they screamed and ran away. <laughs> And Someone said they would pay us to, to do a podcast oh, about sure. Poirot. <gasps> really? I would get paid for that. <laughs> <laughs> I would happily be the recipient of money for my opinions about Poirot. <laughs> I think it was the Poirot role-playing game. I don't entirely remember what we said last week, but oh, apparently we said something about doing like a tabletop we thing. With, about. Yeah. yeah. Someone wanted that and was willing to pay for it. <laughs> Our next question comes from Orbit, who writes, Dear Movable Object and Stoppable Force. <laughs> that is very funny. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> First off, congrats on nearly reaching or having reached 200 episodes. It's kind of amazing reading questions for people who are not sure quite what episode you're up to. <laughs> <laughs> what a marvellous achievement, and I wish you many happy returns and podding for years to come. Granted, that last bit may have been mostly motivated by selfish reasons, my question, in in episode 191 and others, you discussed Destiny 2, a game I'm looking forward to despite not having played the first, not having played the first one, for exclusivity-related reasons. In your discussion of the series coming to PC, you talked about there not really being a game in the same genre available on the platform. However, I have played and enjoyed The Division, which I think is at least aiming for a similar experience. Is there a reason it hasn't come up? Do you consider it too different from Destiny? Um, so we should read this answer this bit first um this is a reasonable point like it didn't come up and i actually reviewed the division for various people so i should have thought about it the reason is it's just miles away from being anywhere near as good as destiny because it's not a very good shooter and destiny is a very good shooter the division's all right but it's not a very good shooter and destiny is and you'd be amazed how much difference that makes the third person first person split is a, a massive difference um like experiential difference in a shooter i think that that separates destiny from a lot of the things that people tend to compare destiny to like making it a fantastic first person shooter that happens to have similar like loot and experience loops it, it's still a very different game for being a first person shooter because mm. the, the discipline and the skill that goes into making a good shooter is very different from that that goes into making a third person shooter yeah absolutely it's the same like division's a lot more like warframe than it is like destiny mm. I think the other thing is just uh, is is also that 
um one of the elements that i really liked about destiny was the social side of things that i could you know go raiding or you know marauding with friends and catch up as we played and i know that some people did mention having that aspect when they played the division for various reasons i think in comments and things but um i don't remember any of my friends sticking with the division for long um there were people who reviewed it and i think graham stuck with it for a while but apart from that there was just no one there to play with that i knew so it wasn't like i was being tempted in in the way that like you know everyone talks about plunk that you know Mm. and and it's like this permanent thing of i know i won't like this game i know i won't be good at this game but everyone i know is in there and maybe i should pick it up they're just the division just stopped being a thing that was talked about pretty much the second it came out because so many people just thought it was a bit meh Mm. Mm. next part of tom he was yawning Next part of Orbit's question is a grudge, which is, as someone who lives in Canada, and I'm sure residents of the British Isles can sympathise, I'm subject to the ever-changing exchange rates, particularly to the US dollar. Five years ago, the US and Canadian dollars were about on par, which meant that games on Steam would have cost the same in either currency. This was before Valve implemented separate currency regions in North America. However, with the weakening of the Canadian dollar in those regions, I would often have to shell out $79 $79 for a new AAA release. My grudge is twofold. One, these prices are based purely on the conversion of USD to the equivalent local currency without any regard for purchasing power. It's not like our wages go up to compensate. And two, the fact that these prices get corrected up when a currency gets weaker compared to the almighty dollar but never down after it gets stronger. For example, Prey now costs 80 Canadian dollars, which comes down to about 65 US dollars, while the price in euros is still 60 dollars, 60 euros even though that means you're paying the equivalent of 70 US dollars. In short, the fact that pricing regions seem to be mostly a vehicle for mere profit instead of accurately resembling the current exchange rate, a galloping horsey orbit. So I rebelled against Steam's prices for UK customers anyway, for Gunpoint, because um, it was... uh, Steam gives you suggested prices, right? You, You specify... You usually tell them what you want it to be in US dollars and they, they figure out what that should be in every other currency. Um, and for gunpoint, I wanted it to be $10 and they converted that to like eight pounds. I think it was or like seven ninety nine or something. And I thought, well, that's at the time <laughs> that was not $10, like $10 much closer to six pounds. It was like six fifty or something. God, those were the days. Uh, yeah. Uh, good old glory days. This was like th- four years ago. <laughs> um, and uh because being based in the uk myself and you know having a pretty keen sense of the the pound and the dollar um i i basically set custom prices for every region that existed at the time uh rounding down so it was like yeah it was ten dollars but it was in the uk i set it to six pounds instead of eight pounds um and it was just a whole number of pounds. It wasn't 99 or anything. It was just like, I wanted to be a kind of clean, clear cut round number. I wasn't trying to trick anybody. I'm not trying to pretend it's less than it is. It's six pounds. Uh, and that's what it is. Uh, and then, uh, I still do that with gunpoint. Um, 
But then they kept introducing new currencies and like, what do you want to price it in Russia? What do you want to price it in the Ukraine? What do you want to price it in this territory? What do you want to price it in Kazakhstan? And I was like, oh shit, I don't know. <laughs> like, I have no sense of what that currency is. I don't know what it means. And uh, the way Valve explained it is that the reason those prices are different is it's not based on currency conversion rates at all. It's uh, purely based on purchasing power. It's supposed to be a reflection of how much a person in that country can afford to spend on a video game and how much they do typically spend based on statistics on video games. Um, and so it can be unfair for individuals, uh, but it's supposed to be um, calibrated to that country's purchasing power. So if your country is wealthy, it's not a question of how your currency converts to that other currency. It's a question of how much money people in your country typically are supposed to have. Um, where did they take that's how it's supposed to work I don't know if it does work that way I don't know if interestingly this gels with something I learned when I was in China which is that um, Steam's prices for given that Steam is this strangely official unofficial grey market entry point for AAA games into China um, the going rate for a AAA game in China is 29 US dollars because that is the local purchasing power and that's what it's determined to be Nothing to do with the local currency to US dollar rate. It's absolutely everything to do with what people are willing to pay. Right. Mm. And so if you want to buy The Witcher 3 in China, it's $29 as a standard rate, <laughs> plus discounts when the sales come around. And whereas it's double that anywhere else. Yeah. Plus, like, um, <laughs> I feel like there's a slight premise behind the question that suggests that companies have some sort of mandate to you know be fair across regions that's not what companies are there to do they're there to make as much money as they can from each region that's literally their purpose and and spending power is a very com complicated metric that yeah. is, is far more complicated than simple exchange rates because of varying tax um situations for citizens in each country plus median you know living the, the wages that people are on etc etc mm. i would be interested in where valve draw the data that they do use from yeah, like which databases which surveys which you know yeah. general bits of information That's because funny. like it also would presumably make a whole bunch of assumptions as to who is buying games who games are for whether it's better to like go on averages like a, a mean average or whether it's better to you know lower things slightly and potentially reach more people or like you know, it's kind of it's it's an interesting thing, and I'd just be interested to for them to show their working. They won't ever. <laughs> I would want to, to what extent you regionalize, like uh, spending power within states within the US is going to be different from state to state. You know, yeah. Do you offer different prices for different people in different states? You know, at what point does it become unacceptable to consumers? It's an interesting question. Well, the, yeah, and like it's kind of interesting in terms of like you know the the whole thing of you know regional workarounds and you know like the sort of arms race technologically on that front to sort of stop people exploiting loopholes but keep loopholes and you know that kind mm. of keep finding loopholes rather for kind of consumer versus um system and also like in terms of things that are bad for the business in terms of it being a, a potentially awkward conversation when a currency changes like i i know that riot recently increased the the 
They increased the cost of their premium in-game currency for League of Legends, um, as in you get fewer riot points for the amount that you spend nowadays. Um, but that was after they, well, in their blog post, they explained that this was because after monitoring what had happened to the pound after Brexit votes had <laughs> come in, um, like they'd sort of waited for a while to see whether it would like bounce back. And because it hadn't, they then needed to, you know, blah, 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 business, blah, blah, you know, <laughs> their own, you know, obviously they've got motives and reasons for doing all of this but obviously that's not going to be a popular move amongst a part of your consumer base so it's like there's also that interesting thing of how you broach a change in an ongoing game you know Mm -hmm. like if if you need to raise a price or lower a price like in the uk we've tended to really avoid that stuff i think but like yeah it's kind of interesting watching it happen Our next question comes from Ryland, who writes, Love the podcast and wanted to tell you about an odd moment I experienced. I currently work as the night watchman for my small city in the United States. This generally involves driving around at night, making sure that things are okay, checking out streetlights, downed trees, and other odd calls. The other night, I was driving through a subdivision when I saw what seemed like an entire apartment's worth of possessions down even to the carpets strewn across the curb. Half seemed to have been placed there, but half seemed to have fallen from a height. I was surprised that no one had taken anything, and that there was no explanation immediately obvious. Aha, I realised. This is the exact kind of dramatic scene one would find in an immersive sim. (laughs) Surely there must be some kind of audio log somewhere nearby with an improbable recording of this. Unfortunately, any such audio log would have probably have consisted solely of of a pleading man shouting, baby, please, oh God, baby, know my stuff, please, we can still talk. (laughs) Have you ever had one of those strange moments where you wished for an unlikely explanation, exposition dump to explain your current scenario? Love the pod, and cheers from the trash fire, Ryland. (laughs) This sounds like a great premise for an immersive sim. (laughs) You're the night watchman for a town, like a whole town, like just everything that happens in this town is your watch. And then you just find an entire apartment's worth of stuff lying around. That's amazing. Your first port of call is, of course, to find the nearest vent and go in it. And then, you know, as you go through, you'll surely at least get experience points. (laughs) If not, find the, you know, the info hub that you're seeking. You want to mouse over things, see what glows. Yeah, I I would pick up each item and rotate it in front of my face until (laughs) I found the secret message on the underside. Yeah. Um, there was one situation where I would have really appreciated an info dump, um, in terms of when, uh, when I was a lot younger and my parents and obviously us as kids, uh, moved house, um, we arrived and the previous occupants had obviously moved out, but they'd taken the little metal things that you get in doorways to keep the carpet from peeling back up. Mm. And they'd taken all of the light shades and light bulbs and things. Excuse me. (laughs) And it was just such an odd (laughs) thing because we obviously hadn't 
done the same. So it's not like they needed all of those extra things. <laughs> and they clearly like wouldn't need to keep the carpets down because <laughs> <laughs> This is causing an ongoing distraction. It was somewhere between a yawn and a snort. I it can't was, really explain it beyond that. It was yeah, it was like I don't even know what that was, Tom. I don't know. I can't You've broken those two. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'll try to hide it. <laughs> Please continue. Come on. Well, I mean, like, I don't really have an end to this because we never resolved it. They just took all of these odd things with them and then just never... I, it was never explained why, and I have no what idea think, what it... What do you think they did in the new place? Because like, the new place probably would have had these well, things, this is, right? That was my point. We <laughs> hadn't taken them with us. Like, were we supposed to have done? We suddenly <laughs> needed them because they were all missing. But, like, because it, they were downsizing house and we were upsizing, so they would have had extras and we would have had too few. So yeah. I genuinely have no idea what was... <laughs> What was even happening there? But, like, I mean, I have more than made up for that in that I now live my life like a complicated thing that requires an info dump every time Chris doesn't understand what I've done. I'm good. No, you're not. You're going to go in a moment. What? You're going to look at Tom and then you're going to... I'm fine. <laughs> Actually, um, I was on the way to pod earlier today. And um, you cross the river and then you go through like a very short tunnel to get to the taxi rank, which I use to get to the podcast. And uh, in in the dark, as I was going through this uh, this small tunnel, like there are two people coming the other opposite direction. And like I was aware they'd kind of like glanced at me and stuff and I was like, okay, whatever. And then one of them stopped in front of me and started spinning his keys in a circular motion at me <laughs> as I walked past. And I was like, okay, it's time not to ever make eye contact with this guy. <laughs> like, is this a mating call? Like, is this some sort of thing that's happening that I don't understand? And uh, I, so I walked past and just like, I was in a really bad mood anyway, because it was drizzling on me and that's all it takes. Um, <laughs> uh, so I came out the other, the, the other end. It's raining got... men. <laughs> Apparently so, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's just like a hotspot for something in Bath that I don't understand. <laughs> um, but I, oh, that I, was a callback to a joke we made in the interval, and no one will have any that, context. It's a good point. <laughs> anyway, but now I, I like I. Uh, I'm not sure if I had that guy's audio diary. Would I access it? <laughs> perhaps not. <laughs> Maybe the, certain mysteries need to stay mysteries. Perhaps, but it, that would be my example from today. Yeah. Oh god. It was very strange. You just get my audio diaries. Like when I explain how the minion's umbrella got stuck in the bramble bush about two feet up from <laughs> where I actually can reach. I mean, audio diaries suggest that I find it and then willingly activate it. Well, you find it. me and ask what the hell's no, happened. you find me. Uh, well, you explain mm. what the hell's happened. <laughs> it's different. It's like being followed by an audio diary. <laughs> <laughs> I usually need your help rectifying the situation yes. and then you're curious about how it happened. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Our final question. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It comes I'm from so tired. Simon. <laughs> We've adequately answered the question, what if podcast, but too much, (laughs) episode 200. Um, 
Simon writes, Dear CNC, please cast your mind back 200 episodes to that golden time when you all still worked in print media. A lot of us still worked in print media. Wasn't there, uh, didn't happen. <laughs> How is a magazine made? Do you use a glorified version of Google Docs? Or Photoshop? As writers, did you have any input out over how your reviews were laid out? Or did you just mail a bunch of words to Graham and hope for the best? When you were when you went to print, did you end up emailing some workshop somewhere? Or is there something fancier? Are websites easier for you to write for now? Or are they just more pressure? Are you, do you, any of you guys miss the good old days? So many questions. Thanks for reading, everybody. Simon, P.S. I've been a PC gamer subscriber for 15 years and I just realised I have no idea how it's made. <laughs> so, as somebody who has previously made a zine, I'm going to say that you photocopy all of your documents and if you really understand the photocopier, you can do it double-sided. <laughs> and then you lay them all out and then you use a long-armed stapler or you befriend somebody whose mum owns a long-armed <laughs> stapler. You staple them, you realise you got the staples wrong, you re-staple them, <laughs> then you fold them, then you cover the whole thing in glitter and you sell it for 50p. That's Pretty much exactly works. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of interesting because the three of us have all done this quite a lot. And it's yeah. funny to notice that there was... nobody knows how we did that. <laughs> I, and I remember talking to uh, a journalist at a different magazine who was uh, flabbergasted that we did not lay out our own articles. Like, he worked mm. at a place where just, like, mm. the person who wrote the article would also, like, edit the InDesign document where they decided where the images, like, not only would they take the images, but they'd also decide where which images where went where mm. and how the text flowed around them, and they would just have to but lay out like... everything. Whereas at PC Gamer, in my time at least, it was always there is a writer, and the writer does the words, and they supply images, screenshots, but then somebody else decides which ones go where and which ones are good enough to display, mm. and uh, how the text flows around them, and how the text fits, and that's you know two different people's jobs. Yeah. Um, yeah, you have, you have, so you have a, a flat plan and a piece of proprietary software, which is the, the map of the issue. And then each page spread is written, then laid out in InDesign, not Photoshop, but according to the magazine's templates. At PCG, that would always mean providing the words and then, and the screenshots and so on, at which point the art editor would choose which pictures went where at which point it went back to the writer to figure out what captions went where because obviously that depends on the pictures and then it would go to a production editor for making it good <laughs> thanks tony ellis <laughs> um and then to like several processes of editing i don't know like how much of this process is of interest to people really but yeah it's... i remember being really pissed off with um there was a, a sort of letter from, I think it was Giles Corrin. Uh, does that name ring the yeah. bell? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, to the editor of whatever paper it was he wrote his opinion column for. I remember the this. Times. Yeah. Um, and he was chewing out their production editors for editing his copy in any way at all. He was furious that they had changed a single letter of his copy because mm. he considered it absolutely um, sacrosanct. Yeah, exactly, mm. sacrosanct. And um, 
he was explaining to them basically like he made a, a sort of subtle clever joke that they had not understood and they they had edited it in a way that ruined the joke but you know preserved some of the words um and that was his evidence for how they are useless hacks and he is a god and we should never touch <laughs> dare to touch his words but his joke was just wildly obtuse it was just like the reason the people editing it didn't get it is because most people won't get it and it just didn't make a lot of sense and his claim his his demand that you know from now on never change a single word of my copy ever is just wildly unrealistic because you just can't fit it to a page in that case you just can't lay it out in a way that works on a page like there's a thing called magazine craft and you have to actually lay out text and pictures in a way that makes sense for the format you're delivering it in and that unfortunately is diametrically opposed to a writer's preciousness about their own yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. copy. Like, you could come up with the best title in the universe, but if it goes over, like, the line limit for that thing and looks hideous or just doesn't fit, you can't use it. Yeah, yeah. Because... Which is the fate of the many of the best puns you will never hear. And to be honest, having someone <laughs> between you and uh, and the audience who acts as a filter and if he doesn't get your joke or they don't get your joke it doesn't make it through is a positive thing. <laughs> I have been like, saved for myself many times well, by that. If not, well, no, I mean, they're not attached to that joke, so they can just cut yeah, it if, yeah. it just, if that's I mean, the easiest well, way of making point, it work. What you're saying, Tom, is that you've work. been saved by that point, not by that process, but by specifically Tony Ellis. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, yeah, what you need someone really good in that role. Like, there's, this is the thing, like, mags are a collaborative process and that's what i mean the part of this question was how how is a magazine made and the, the answer is it's made a multi-stage process in in design and we use google docs for text but not for laying anything out and um some proprietary software in-house and the other question is how is it related to working on the web and the difference the big difference is the absence of that process like you know yeah 100%. You know, and and that's not elements to say... of it survive like for example with headlines and with you know particular yeah and it depends on the outlet again yeah. but like it's not to say that people can't be absolutely brilliant dazzling writers online it's just mm. a different skill set because the magazine print craft is often very collaborative and very has multiple stages of checks and balances built in um the web isn't like that cause it needs to be more reactive it has to be really fast and i think like the best writing comes from opposition from editors and from someone coming back at you and that's the thing i've really lacked writing online in recent years where i've just been like running my own tiny ship on pcm uk side is that I, there's no editor who has the time to like come back at me on stuff and that's what makes you better that's what makes all writers better is someone coming back at you and questioning what mm. you, you're doing because yeah, yeah. that that reinforce that gives you that's that ability to it teaches you how to criticize your own writing as well. Like you, you always like that editor, all the editors that come back at you go into your head and they become your kind of self-editor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, and that, the that, most, for me, the most useful thing about being in the office was that I got not only that feedback on my own work, but also uh, everybody else who submitted work during that time. I got to hear the feedback on their work yes, as well, because yeah, I'm sitting next to the people really who are like, yeah. Hey, did you read this thing from this guy? Or didn't you think this was kind of bland or anything? This didn't make any sense or that like this, Often in rude all of that information <laughs> just seeps into your brain yeah, and you know, sure. Oh shit, don't make that mistake. Or... But, but then when you read your own work, once you've been in that environment, like you become your own editor at that point, but you still need editors to come at you. Yeah. And that like I, any, any sort of Giles Corrin style, squeed like that that i hear i just 
I immediately think they're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. They're the, not a good writer. Like, yeah, the... Writing is a craft at the end of the day. Mm. Like, it's not a... You're not a novelist mm. at this point. Like, you're not... Well, novelists, novelists have fucking good editors, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, but you're not bestowing some kind of God-given truth. You are... Mm. You are... You know, you are transmitting information, transmitting ideas. And if they're not effective, it's not effective. And I think print is a really good training I suppose there is a attitude. difference between being a staff writer and a named columnist in terms of, like, your function. But, like, yeah. it doesn't mean that you get to be a dick. No, mm. that's true. And, yeah, like, I think egoless writing is something that print is really good at teaching. Mm. I don't know. It's great. Like, yeah, it's, it like, print writing is you know that process creates the best writing i'm having worked on the web for a long time definitely i still completely believe that um it's just there's different like commercial pressures on web to be quick and that has to yeah be for sure and the absence of word counts and things like, yeah is initially incredibly liberating and then you realize that it's also stifling in some ways because <laughs> it doesn't give you that sense of yeah i always limit quite carefully want to add in the part about like what happens once it's all in the documents and stuff because like that's a part that is a crucial yeah so step between so, what gets to this person so the mm. the journey of an article is copy which starts up as a google doc usually delineated into segments based on whatever the article is going to be obviously plus a zip file full of images that gets sent to an art editor who turns it into a page in indesign that looks like something resembling a magazine page probably overrunning and missing a bunch of stuff that gets sent to a production editor who turns it into a page with um, that fits the page for one thing, that fits it exactly and looks nice with pull quotes and that sort of thing. PC Gamera at that point would probably be sent to the writer again for captions and other kind of miscellaneous page bits that should probably come from the writer but might not necessarily in every case. Um, at which point it goes back to art for kind of final tweaks, at which point it gets generated into a PDF, which is then first point reviewed by the deputy editor of the magazine. And it's then reviewed by the editor of the magazine and then is reviewed by the art editor of the magazine, having been signed off three times, <laughs> is then eligible to be printed and published, um, mm. which is kind of a remarkable amount of checks and balances. But that, that's where integrity comes from. That's yeah. where consistency... Yeah quality control and integrity comes from is that process buy magazines everybody <laughs> yeah <they're laughs> brilliant are great no, honest okay. to god like best job i've had in this business was deputy editor of pc gamer like bar none like until going freelance like yeah i just meant like uh there's there's the stage after which i think maybe the person was asking about because you don't press print mm. <laughs> I see what that's you mean. what i was getting so at. um so the Yes. So the, um, once everything in the magazine is approved through all three stages of that approval, it goes to a central production team at the publisher who vet it for print readiness, at which point it gets sent to a third party publishing, like printing company who print the tens of thousands or so copies are actually necessary and bind them and do all the rest of that. But yeah, that 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 side of it is is external to. But that's yeah, all... like you don't go into the future <clears throat> yeah, offices you, you, and there's you... like a big news machine like whirring no, in the background. No, we don't have a basically. big. Yeah, we don't have that kind of like crash zoom in on fresh off the press shooting out all yeah, this yeah, yeah, exactly. into... happen. Like get, get decapitated by a disc in the olden days. <laughs> yeah, I really like... need to stop saying we. That's a really important. <laughs> yeah, I, I still do that, and it's been four years. <laughs> <laughs> 
That that point where it goes to that third party though is uh, often quite tense if you're running something uh, a cover feature that's dependent on an embargo where you have a exclusive etc. Yeah, and indeed. You're suddenly relying on a third party production studio to not leak it etc. Et yeah. So yeah, there's lots of elements to this, and and yeah, we're getting a bit inside baseball, but it's the end of the podcast, and everyone's probably left already. Yeah. <laughs> well, they did ask. Well, they did how, ask. How is sausage made? <laughs> That's how the sausage is made. But it's yeah, true. I thought that part might be important because, like, I think if anyone, like, imagines a newsroom entirely based on, like, you know, um, yeah. pop culture. Mm. Sam yeah, isn't like... somewhere, like, cranking a big printer, <laughs> like, making the magazine come out. Like, You're not at... all rushing to, like, pay phones. <laughs> like, like, we always, <laughs> we always used to see... Phoning in a story. Our review of Tacoma is just down this line in a... <laughs> He's walking outside Key House saying, read all about it. Yeah. <laughs> the end of the Richard process. Which is quite good. The end of the process was always the files going to the print process, not us delivering them to the printer. And everybody decamping to the Hobgoblin. <laughs> yeah, and then we get pissed. I used to, when I was disc editor, my deadline was um, sort of similar to the rest of the mag, but totally separate. In the, you know, I was just working to my own deadline um, and entirely responsible for it. And if it was, uh, basically I had to get it to a different building in town by a certain time of the day and making the interface and making all the, the cover disc and you know everything work was one thing. And then burning it to a disc back in those days took literally like an hour and a half. It was like 90 minutes to burn a DVD. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and it was like a 90 gigabyte double-sided DVD. And sometimes that would just fail. And you had to do it again. And so that was like another 90 minutes. And when you're trying to get to a courier who leaves at noon, uh, that's a, an awkward thing. And if that happened, if it went over the deadline, I had to like book a special courier that was going to cost, going to cost more money. Um, but if I wasn't, I had to get it to this certain building in Bath by a certain time. So I would be burning it a disc. I have to run from my building to the building where you can burn the discs, <laughs> burn the discs for 90 minutes. And then when I had the burnt discs, uh, put them in an envelope and then like sprint to the other building in, in Bath and deliver it there by this certain deadline. And then if I did it, then I, that was it, like me done for the day. Um, and I would go and get a carrot cake milkshake at Shakeaway. <laughs> that was my celebration each month. This is uh, basically like the worst version of a movie, like, um, you know, like a bomb defusal scene. Like, is the disc going to burn? Is Tom going to be able to uh, get his milkshake? If it milkshake? doesn't, I can get the later courier. And it's somewhat inconvenient for the company I work for, but I don't truly know what the cost of this is. <laughs> I may or may not get my milkshake. <laughs> If it's the burner's fault, I don't feel too bad about it. <laughs> Websites are much easier. They are. Yeah. Mm. Almost to their deficit. <laughs> Indeed. We ran out of questions, everybody. Oh, God. Hooray. Hey. And that's episode 200. You have to remember Hooray. all of the things to end with now. I'm going to be completely fine. You wait. You wait and see. Okay. You watch this happen. Dacoma, Dacoma. <laughs> <laughs> Just want to insert that here. And meanwhile, in Pip's head, ducks. ducks. <laughs> what is it about ducks, Pip? They're great. This is the audio diary that we should have answered with in the 
previous question. You can scrub through it. It's like if you scrub back to like Pip's beginning of this entire podcast, it's just like ducks, ducks, ducks. Where was Pip at the start of it? Ducks, 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 ducks. It's because we watched that Pets film. Um, the... You're looking at Tom, but you mean to be looking at me. No, no, I was looking for recognition Secret on anyone's face. Uh, yeah, you, you and... should have looked at me, the person who watched that film with you. Okay, well, unless you watch Babe Two, Pig in the Pig City, Pig in the City, which I totally no, did. alas. Um, but so that film has a, uh, a a rabbit who is sort of weirdly mourning the death of his colleague, a duck. <laughs> and I was wondering about the inner life of that duck, and I've been thinking about that duck for a lot <laughs> of the time, and just ducks more generally, and duck eggs, because they're quite pretty. And then um I just, I'm so tired. I just, <laughs> I just I fixed on ducks, because it's an easy word, and they're quite nice. And I was just imagining a lovely white duck with its lovely feathers, like, flapping around, but not a swan, because they're horrible. So, just just nice ducks are kind of they're monsters like <laughs> socially not like mallards that like do awful unspeakable things hmm. um i was just imagining you know what like, like those, bank robberies. the the tall the tall ducks you know yeah so the duck in bay pig in the city i thought it was a goose but i looked it up yeah. and apparently it's a duck yeah and I mean, that one, he's a bit of a wise guy. Oh, really? <laughs> Personality-wise. What? Uh. Are you saying this... Are you saying that your opinion of this duck was lesser when you knew more about the performer? No, well, um, I mean, the duck is given a personality by the speech that is imposed upon him. The actor duck might have been different. Might yeah. Have been a very different person. I don't think they use a duck as the actor. I think it's a human. I think that's how they got the human speech effect. No, but there was the, the duck was doing the acting, right? And then I, the like, human was doing the talking. Yeah, so I think actually the duck might have been a puppet. A lot of the animals in Babe are CGI in some way, but this one like really looked like a puppet. Okay, <laughs> I haven't seen Babe, and I haven't seen Babe 2, because I probably wouldn't have understood it, because I hadn't seen Babe 1. Yeah, it is, is a, uh, I watched this film because Brendan Chung, uh, creator of 30 Flights of Loving and, and many other games, uh, has been telling me for Quadrilateral years... Cowboy? Yeah, mm. uh, that this is one of the greatest films ever made. And he is a, he's a student of cinema, this is his education, mm. he came from a cinema background, uh, went into games. But he's not a student of ducks, is he? Well... Is anybody? <laughs> is anybody? Duckologists! Is that a thing? Yes. Did you make that up? It's hard to know, isn't it? <laughs> Pippa's giving a narrow-eyed look to Chris. <laughs> Waving her hat. She's done the full part of the Pips telling a lie dance, which is narrowing the eyes and then doing the kind of the hand wave. Who can know? Someone must be an expert in ducks. Because otherwise we wouldn't know about ducks. <laughs> that stands to reason. You wouldn't believe how close, how close I was to ending this podcast. <laughs> this is the best part. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm on form now. I've woken up. I'm anyway, all, Babe 2 is pretty good. It gets surprisingly dark, surprisingly fast. Really? I would say within the first half hour of its two hour running time, you're already like, a hospital is on fire. A clown is sobbing. <laughs> <laughs> how does Babe get to the city? A uh, plane. Oh, really? Yep. Why is he on a plane? Was she? Um, he. It's a he. Uh, it is played by a, a female actor, though. Um, all right, we've been doing this for close to four hours. <laughs> it's time to end. It's time we to don't end. have time <laughs> to recap all of Big Pip in the City. Pip in the City. Pip in the City. Excuse me. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh, no. Oh, no.
first Pip one. Pip in the there. city. <laughs> the sheep, Pip. Yes. You can find our website. <laughs> if you would... What? Crateandcrowbar.com? That's it. That is all of the questions and anecdotes and tangents we have time for. If you'd like to send us a question, anecdote, tangent, grudge, oh, and so on for a future episode, you can do so by emailing us at questions at com. You can also email us at questions at com. You can always Twitter us at Creighton Crowbar. I looped a little bit there. You probably noticed. <laughs> it's a glitch in the matrix. It was a glitch in the matrix. You didn't even, it didn't even occur to you. Amazing. Nothing. Me? No. Okay. What? You can tweet us individually. Yeah. I- <laughs> Wait, hang on. There's more. Oh, shit. <laughs> if you would like to Pay us support <laughs> the podcast for some reason after this four-hour spectacular, you can do so by investigating our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. You can also help us out by visiting us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar and checking out our episode posts and Bloodborne videos and miniatures monthly episodes and so on and clicking like and rate and subscribe and all the rest of the buttons that make things good. Another not button that makes... Dislike. Not dislike. Not dislike. Shh. Never that. Another button that helps a lot is on iTunes. If you rate the episode on iTunes, it makes us more visible. We're also going to work to try and get the good. podcast more visible on other platforms particularly android platforms because i know nothing about them and i'm informed every time someone tweets us telling us why aren't you on this is there a button you can click to make us more visible 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 it's too late for that it's too late we're for that. <laughs> maximum visible we're maximum visible now if you would like to follow us as individuals you can do so on twitter.com i'm at c thurston that's c-t-h-u-r-s-t-e-n tom senior at PCG Ludo L-U-D-O. Tom Francis. At Pentadact, P-E-N-T-A-D-A-T-T. Philippa War. At Philippa War. P-H-I-L-I-P-P-A-W-A-W-R. Very good. Thanks. I know my name. Babe Pig in the City. I can't believe you just did that with the street hand gesture. It can't be described. End the podcast. I want to go home. You are home. I want to be more at home. Goodbye. (laughs) See you in episode 201. Oh, no. I'll be there. Thanks Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody. Wow. 413 minutes.